Forget it. All right, here we, go. Here, we get, here we go. Welcome to the WTF Forum. The hosts do not give financial, legal, medical, or any kind of advice. Opinions are their own. This broadcast contains foul language and dangerous ideas. If you need a trigger warning, you are in the wrong place. Now enjoy the show. Dear partners and friends of What the fuck? Forum. A very cordial welcome. The WTF Forum is a decentralized broadcast network with no governing body of any kind and is produced and distributed by a loosely affiliated, ever-growing network of rogue, independent content creators. This forum does not, will not, and shall not have any one location, feed, platform, or channel, but shall be shared and multiplied as nature dictates. If any listener of the following proceedings finds themselves offended, they will be asked kindly to go fuck themselves. All right, what the fuck is up, y'all? How we doing? How we doing? Another beautiful night for a forum, if I can say so myself. Uh, we have a small group, which is totally fine because I've got a I've got a fun topic, and it, I almost think it'll be a good show for a small group. Um, we have a possibility of my friend Call to Liberty hopping in. Um, I invited him in particular because I think he is going to be very interested in the topic that I want to propose to the forum. Um, but before we get the, you know get to all that crap, I'll pass it around the circle over to my good friend Stella Q. Hey, Mike. Um, yeah, always good to be here, whether it's a large group or a small group. It really doesn't matter. It's a meeting of the minds. So thank you for having me again. Stella Q here from Union of the Unknowns and uh, various other places occasionally. You might catch me. <laughs> Bear, where are you from? Hey, guys. I'm Bear Snare from thebearsnare.com. And you can listen to my podcast, My Friends Hate Freedom, on any podcatcher. So I'm happy to be here tonight. <laughs> Hell to the motherfucking yeah, bro. And I have no idea what we have planned. So it's good to see you guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> and if if my voice sounds a little scratchy, it's because I kind of partied it up a bit this weekend. Went camping, I was telling y'all before we went live, uh, with some interesting folks. Uh, some people in the freedom space, uh, including the great Jared the Permi guy, my good friend and now semi-neighbor. Uh, and we had BR the Anarch, and we had Guns and Guillotines. I'm not sure if you two are familiar, um, but they're good guys, and they all had their lady partners with them. Uh, me, I just brought my dog. <laughs> nice. Were you at it Allentown? Was, it was not Allentown, but it was, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a similar caliber of party. If not, maybe better, you know? Awesome. Yeah. I tend yeah, to think we, dogs dogs are the best people anyway. So, oh, absolutely, yeah. Doc <laughs> never Doc never broke my heart, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it makes some good friends. Yeah, yeah they're tech yeah. magnets too. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun, you know, and we actually did record a short podcast um, while we played a game of cards that I'd never heard of before called Tonk. 
which was pretty fun, involved money. You know, you basically either won or you paid a dollar. And so, you know, everybody had like 10 bucks and we played for like an hour. It was a lot of fun. Turns out it's like a culturally black game. So we were kind of appropriating some culture doing that. But I think I think we're OK. I don't think we're going to get in too much trouble. <laughs> Still allowed to play the game. I hope life I hope. is a game. Yeah. Yeah. Just I'd never, never even Hail Marys and you know, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of fun though. It added like a cheekiness level to the game where it's like, if you won, you're like, ha ha pay up. You sons of bitches, you know, <laughs> give me my dollar, give me my dollar. Come on. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It was fun. But yeah. How was y'all's weekend? Dollars. How was y'all's weekend? Anything uh, noteworthy? Um, over to you, Bear. <laughs> <laughs> I got a few little projects done around the house. I, I made a big, long list yesterday morning and crossed a bunch of stuff off, so that was pretty good. Yeah. Hell to the yeah. And the weather yeah, was I'm, nice. I'm Go just ahead. doing the usual stuff, um, you know, a bit of gardening. I'm still, I'm still looking for Stumpy. Stumpy is missing in action at the moment, which is a bit of a shame since the oh, rain no. came. We've is got another week of rain. Big pardon? Is that the lizard? Yeah. Yeah. Stumpy. He's probably just out there doing his lizard thing. He'll come back. Maybe. Yeah. Well, somebody suggested he's shacked up. So maybe. Uh, maybe so. Maybe so. You got competition. Yeah. Or oh, maybe he, you know, he could have been taken as well. He's been traitor, you know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully he turns up. <laughs> yeah. The, the legend of Stumpy continues, right? It does. I like it. I like it. You know, I like legends of all kinds, which is why I'm very excited for this topic. We're getting a little a little old school on the WTF forum. Uh, we're going to talk about ghost ships. But I'm going to bring it. I'm going to bring it back to sort of modern times, uh, and you'll see where I'm going with this. But I'm just going to do kind of a hard segue here, and we're gonna we're gonna get a little old school. Great. I feel right at home. <laughs> With dropping sail and pennant that never a wind may reach, they float in sunless waters beside a sunless beach. Their mighty masts and funnels are white as driven snow, and with a pallid radiance, their ghostly bulwarks glow. Here is a Spanish galleon that once with gold was gay. Here is a Roman trireme whose hues outshone the day. But Tyrian dyes have faded, and prows that once were bright, with rainbow stains where only death's livid, dreadful white. Everyone knows the sea is full of ghosts. As long as humans have been traveling on water, people have lost their lives in the depths. The sea is beautiful and full of life, but it is just as deadly and unforgiving. And yet, despite her wrath and bloodlust, we go to her nonetheless in search of any number of things. Fortune, food, adventure, home. But what happens to those who go to sea but never return? And perhaps worse, what happens when they do? 
but no longer among the world of the living. For hundreds, even thousands of years, people have reported seeing ghost ships or otherwise ghostly phenomena at sea. Specifically, the term ghost ship was used by old mariners to refer to any ship found at sea without its crew, something that actually wasn't all that unheard of in the 1800s due to wide numbers. Sometimes the crew abandoned ship, other times a storm took them all to a watery grave without and sometimes everyone other or times kidnapped by pirates. But today, ghost ship is a term that also refers to literally a ghostly ship, or a ship inhabited by ghosts. Today we'll take a dive into the depths of some of those stories, some you may have already heard of. Thousands of people have seen haunted apparitions at sea, but surely not all of these eyewitnesses were lying about what they saw. Odds are they really did see something. But if not a ghostly ship from beyond the grave, then what was it? There's actually a scientific explanation. Come learn with me. But first, let's hear from today's sponsor, Bright Cellars. Even though I love wine, I've... Okay. I hope that came through. I got a little icon so showing my Wi-Fi was kind of acting up. Um, did you it guys... It got choppy at one point, but okay. most of it was fine. Okay, good. Um yeah so ghost ships y'all um i mean i guess i i just want to throw out like to whatever thoughts you might have but this is something that's very much in in our like heritage in our fucking lore very very deeply okay sort of spiritualizing particularly ships but also trains cars and planes anyway, any thoughts well i guess my mind went straight well my mind i'll tell you where it went straight went straight to was the sirens i started looking the, the sirens up um the half bird half women that lure the soul, uh, the uh, sailors to their death um but also the bimbina triangle came to mind as well so um yeah, been, yeah, yeah. I, I'm a bit of a house brick when it comes to this, so it's going to be really interesting. A house brick? What does that mean? I don't know much. Ab- yeah, I don't know much about this topic. <laughs> yeah, I've, <laughs> I've, I've never brick, seen you know? a ghost ship, um, so this is sort of a new thing to me. But mm. I know I was on Lake Michigan earlier this year, and there have been thousands of shipwrecks on Lake Michigan, like along that coast that I was on. Yeah. And there, um, my parents went down to Cape May earlier, uh, like a few weeks ago or whatever. And there are so many wrecked ships out there. There's actually one sitting like where, where you can see it. Like it's above the water a little bit. Brother, brother, you weren't, you weren't <clears throat> at old mission point by chance. Were you? Uh, this is my parents, but it was, it was Cape May. I think. Cape so, May. Um, do me a favor, look up old mission point and tell me if it's near Cape May, because it would be kind of a wild coincidence and I'll tell you why. Okay. Okay. I've mentioned, I've I've mentioned it before on at least my show, if not on the forum, but sitting right next to me here. In fact, I can show it. Excuse the mess. That is a coffee table built out of shipwreck lumber. Oh, nice. Uh, I love that. I love it. Built built by my great, great, maybe great uncle. He wow. had a tugboat and he had a brass dive helmet. And he would dive in Lake Michigan for shipwreck timber. 
and he would chain it up and float it to the surface using rubber balloons. He would literally have to unhook wow. his tank or his uh his hose rather. Uh-huh. No tanks back then. It was an air compressor up on the boat with a hose running the whole way down. Very, very dangerous. If anything fails, you are fucked. Mm. Right? And so anyways, he would build furniture and, um, you know, there's a bar that's still open in somewhere like northern sort of Michigan. I, I, you know, I don't know what town. But he built the whole bar out of shipwreck lumber, and that bar is still like family owned. So oh, like, that sounds really cool. Wow. So I've always, you know, I grew up like my uncle had this table, then my cousin had this table. Now I have it. Um, this table has always been in my life, and I've always felt a connection to it. And it's because it has a soul. <laughs> yes, that's you really know what well I mean? put. Yep, that's really well put. Unlike all the furniture you get these days. Pretty much. Yeah. So I was looking at images of Mission Point, and it's definitely not somewhere I was. Um, okay, I was okay. somewhere a bit less populated. Gotcha. Um, I will say I, I used to have a – yeah, it's in, it is incredible how many shipwrecks there are when you start looking into it. I used to have a, uh, a map of shipwrecks that happened off the coast of Tasmania all over the place. And um, it was astounding how many there were. I ended up giving that map away. I really regret it now, but um, – yeah, lots and lots that you would never, you know, I mean, over the years, obviously, there's probably a bit of a build-up, but um, yes, lots of mysteries. Probably, probably. Um, I mean, there'd be ships that have gone down that they wouldn't have a clue back then. They wouldn't have a clue where to start looking, no, no way of looking. So basically, it's like they're just gone. There's no explanation. They just didn't arrive at their destination. So. Yeah, um... I, I've always been kind of captivated by the the folklore around ocean-going vessels, right? I loved all the old sailor and pirate stories and movies and books. And, like, I don't know, something about that, uh, that whole way of life is kind of fascinating. And I'm going to extrapolate a bit, um, like I said, to include, like, tra- well, I'm, I don't have anything specifically on trains, but just for example, there are there are stories about ghost trains. You don't hear many stories about ghost planes, okay? But I'm gonna I'm gonna remind everybody of one that happened not so terribly long ago. This might not shock you. This has been um, kind of going viral lately, and I'm gonna withhold my position on this for now and just kind of present you a a series of of bits of evidence we'll say and um you know what fuck it i'll share my perspective i'm just gonna (laughs) say i think this is the modern version of a ghost ship story yeah so we saw these videos that's suspicious on face isn't it yeah, so like, there's no chance that this plane crashed into something in the ocean. Then the question is, okay, what really happened to it? Now, fast forward to our videos. And let's when I see let's this, dump that. Let's dump the video. Yeah, let's, let's show the video here. Uh, so go ahead and pull it up if you want. Okay. I see this video on the left here. I, I've seen this video um, back in 2014. 
Uh, this one on the left, I had seen this in 2014 and a lot of other people saw it in 2014 as well. And back then I just had no idea to understand what I was even looking at. So let me start from the beginning here. These are side-by-side -side videos. These are, we have independent videos that you can pull up, but I like to show it side-by-side -side so you can actually see that they're perfectly in sync with one another. We see this plane and right away here, I'm going to pause it. You can see the smoke trail coming out of the plane in both videos. We know this is smoke because these cumulus clouds here only form in low altitudes. And you can kind of see how low they are compared to the plane. Uh, contrails only form at 30,000 feet. So that means that this is not contrails we're seeing. Well, right uh, contrails form between 18,500 and 28,000 feet. And, what uh, looking at here and contrails do not come from the tail of the plane. They come from the engines. So there yeah. would be two trails merging as one. That's not what we're seeing here. Yeah. So, so when I saw the evidence and, and your interpretation, I think that you're correct here. There's probably some kind of fire on the plane as it goes. As exactly. It's... So we think there's a fire, which would be indicative of these lithium ion batteries that are on this plane, 221 kilograms of them. Now watch it. You see this orb and how fast this orb just flew in off the side of the screen here. This orb is going like Mach three, like 2000 miles an hour. And we can estimate that because it's going between 10 and 13 times faster than the plane. And this plane is actually descending, making a turn, a standard circle turn. So that means it's going between 150 and 200 miles an hour at this point. Now the orb ricochets past the plane, turns around like a boomerang and starts circling it. Now this is the part where you can see the second orb. What's going to happen here is right near the water level, this orb is going to shoot across the water and it's going to come up through this cloud. It's going to join the first orb. So there it comes up through the water. It's hard to see in this version, but there it is. And then a third orb comes flying out of the side of the screen. And now we have- Yeah, now what orbs. I see there, uh, Ashton, yeah. is the first orb- uh, it's almost like has missile detection. It comes up yeah. and it, it detects like the tracking, object right? and then it reads it first mm -hmm. in two dimensions before the other ones come and join it. It almost like yep. gives a quick 3D and, so that up. nothing, you know, so that they're in perfect unison when they get up there. Yeah, like it misses it, right? Like in the beginning, it like circles to the side of it. Like it's yeah. trying to figure out it where switches. it is, right? Weird, exactly. yeah. That, and this is the first part where I'm like, okay, this is some kind of like tracking where it's tracking the plane. And then the other ones come flying in and they don't do that same thing. They immediately are right on it. Yeah, they know where it is because of the other unit. Now, before we go any further, yeah. in, back in 2014, when they did investigations into the crash, yeah. did they know about this lithium ion payload and was it ever discussed? It, we found some articles that actually do discuss it, but very, very few. It's almost never discussed in any official narratives. The fire scenario gets ruled out. I'm trying to remember what the exact reason is, but it doesn't make any sense to me because every witness supports the fire scenario. Well, so I looked like the, at uh, yeah. all the articles and then they, the final article that came out that, and there was none after was one that had the five uh, theories on why it crashed. Yeah. It was that the, the uh, pi one of the pilots, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. put everyone out of the main deck that, reduce the pressure they all fucking asphyxiated and so mm -hmm. on and so forth it's all like these nonsense uh yeah. dialogues when if yeah. we know there were lithium ion batteries that long ago in the payload duh yeah that should have been that and the funny part is like we didn't know how dangerous they were back in 2014 if you go to the faa's website and look up lithium ion battery fires it starts in 2014 and it's like nine incidents and they actually banned them in the cargo bay of airplanes in 2015 the next right. year and, and I think now, that maybe the cargo bay would have been separated from the passengers, so they might have not is, died from the lithium ion. Fire. Actually, these cargo bays are actually built to withstand fires up to like okay. seventeen hundred degrees. So, so the passengers were probably still alive, based on the knowledge we have. Hard to say exactly. I 
think so. But you have to realize if this lithium ion battery is exploded, it probably did depressurize the plane. So that's okay. probably why they're flying so low is they're trying to get enough oxygen for the passengers to be able to breathe. And these things are going to be billowing toxic smoke, which is what you see this yeah. smoke coming out of the back. So it's probably going through the air conditioning units. And there's these two AC vents right near the landing gear, which is where we think this is pouring out of the plane. It's kind of the point you mentioned earlier. It's not coming from the engengines, it's coming from like the middle of the plane here. Now, okay, let's go before back to we go any further, if yeah. this is some type of advanced technology being deployed here, maybe as a test, yeah, a yeah. test because they're going to easily be able to say, oh, it crashed, blah, blah, blah. They're testing this technology. Um, Could be. They would have had time. So how long had this plane been missing and, and what was going on in the meantime so that maybe like these black ops or these secret operations would have been like they've had – did they have hours to be like, Here, let me, okay, let me let's go do it with this. So we can see this is how the plane goes out because a lot of people don't know the visualization of how this goes out. Yeah. So this plane takes off at 1642, and we'll go back to the other video in a sec, but at 1721 is when the plane goes dark. This is one minute after there's a very calm goodnight MH370 in the cockpit. Yeah. And I think that this is the point where the fire explode, like kind of bursts and begins because Mike McKay is on an oil rig and he sees this plane on fire at this exact time. There's even nine witnesses along the coast that hear a loud noise at exactly this time as well. So now off the is, eastern coast of Malaysia, there's a witness yeah, that sees South a plane on fire. Okay. Yeah. And so now what happens is this plane turns around and it goes to Penang Langkawi International Airport, which is Wired article that actually talks about a fire says, this is the right location to go to. This has got a nice long landing strip that you would use where you can land a 777-200. And apparently the altitude is really good here. There's not enough mountains in the way or anything like that. You can yeah. fly low. So it goes back to the logical location where you would find a, um, you would you go for an emergency situation, but it doesn't land. It keeps going, presumably because the landing gear is either damaged or can't be deployed for whatever reason. And the next thing you're supposed to do is try to land on your belly. And the problem with that is you're filled with fuel. So you might try to dump the fuel, but you're on fire. Right. If you're on fire and you try to dump the fuel, like wow. that doesn't seem good. So the next thing you're supposed to do in the pilot manual is you're supposed to land in the ocean. Now, the problem with landing in the ocean is this time here, which says 1752, that's 152 a.m. So it's middle of the night. It's pitch black. We checked the moon. The moon phase was down. The sun is down. So this plane is pretty much doomed at this point, because if you try to land in the ocean, the plane's going to rip apart. It's not like Sully Sullenberger landing in the Hudson River. If you try to land in the ocean, your plane's going to rip apart. Also, I don't know if a lot of people And then know you're going to get eaten by sharks. Yeah, a lot of mainland Chinese nationals don't learn how to swim either. It's not like in the West where everybody learns generally from like a young age. So this plane was filled with Chinese nationals as well. So this is a really, really bad situation. We presume because the Malaysian Minister of Defense does an interview where he says that they don't have identification of the plane, but they know it's not hostile and they know it's a civilian aircraft. The only way that's possible is if they actually had communication with the plane, because otherwise there's no way you could rule out it being hijacked, right? Now, additionally, yeah, additionally, ahead. there is a absorbent amount of employees from one specific company, yeah. which is abnormal because you would never have this many high-level executives on a single plane just for insurance purposes. Yeah, and they weren't executives, but they were high-level engineers and scientists. I, you'd, I'd argue those people are more important than your executives, right? Yeah, they're the ones yeah. who know how they're everything doing. operates. You know, they know they're doing the stuff, right? So you've got. So what company people. are they from? Yeah, Freescale Semiconductors, and we found that this company is tied to defense, as well as tied to potential emergence of room temperature superconductors. We found an, a 2005 NSA National Security Agency report that talks about Freescale Semiconductors and 
how they've been advancing their semiconductors to potentially achieve superconductivity. And it says that only this will only happen by 2010 or 2012 if the government actually spends funds to support it. So these people might be directly tied to some technology and these orbs that we see in the videos. Well, interestingly enough, Ashton, I don't, yeah. you probably are not aware. There have been several room temperature superconductor hoaxes over the last few years. The most recent just got debunked in the last few months. Yeah. And I would argue that it's possible that room temperature superconductivity has been suppressed and that those debunks may not even be accurate, right? Because if you think no, about it- No, it's for show as yeah. propaganda to divert, like, no, we don't have that technology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's the idea, right? Yeah, to have people say, okay, we don't have that. But here's the thing. If, we, if we're looking at these orbs, then we do have that technology and it's being suppressed from, you know, us. Now- Going back to your point here, uh, we have about one hour and 20 minutes or one hour till we get to this point, And then one hour and 20 minutes before we get to where this witness is. And this witness is on a boat here. And she sees this glowing orange plane. Now, if this plane was on fire and they're battling it using the fire extinguishing devices, it's going to be releasing this bromine gas. And you can't keep these lithium ion batteries out. You can like put them out. They keep coming back, put them out. So they're probably deploying all the fire extinguishing devices. And now it's glowing orange because this gas is permeating throughout the whole plane while they're battling this fire. And that's what the witness sees here, a glowing orange plane consistent with a halogen lamp. And at this point now, this witness sees this and it's flying very low. Again, they recreate it. They think it's about 10,000 feet. And it circles around the plane or around the boat. And this is where she goes inside to put the kettle on after like five, 10 minutes of watching this plane. Yeah. And she comes back out and there's no plane anymore. And so this is the part two where I asked her what time this happened because I actually got in touch with her. Wow. She said she thought it was 1840 UTC which is weird because I go and check the old news articles and they say that when they lost contact with the plane was not 1822. They say the old news articles say 1840 is the last contact with the plane. This is also the exact time and location where the official narrative says this plane turns into the South Indian ocean and goes down here to the South. So now if you think about it from a conspiracy perspective, that just means that everything from this point forward is a lie, right? And what really happens is our videos happen here around this time. Well, wait a minute. You said it, uh, the official narrative is they lost contact at 1822, correct? So they changed it later on. And yeah. what happened is so this first is based it was on this 40, radar data. And yeah. then it was, and then what was the alteration then, to 1822? 1815, and then it's 1822. And I'm still not sure which one of those two times it is. If it's 18. So they're just cutting off the last 20 minutes because they don't want anyone to think anything happened. They don't want anyone to figure it out, right? Yeah. They don't want people to. So, and the Malaysian defense, like military guy, uh, you know, is super sketchy about the information. They make people look in the South China Sea for like a week and a half while they yeah. know that they have radar data that shows this plane going over here. So, like, from the beginning, everything is sketchy about the situation. They don't release the radar data for weeks. They don't release the Immersat pings, which say that it goes into the South Indian Ocean for weeks. All right, I look so, at these Immersat pings real quick, and yeah. there's an anomaly right at this exact time, at 1839. All of a sudden, at 1839, in this XL data, it's just zeros. So, and then after they're that, being disingenuous. Like, they're trying to scrub yeah. the timeline. Let's finish the video and show I'm people what happened in okay. your footage. So now we're watching it and we're, now we've got an idea. We had hundred or one hour and 20 minutes to respond. And so now here we're watching these videos and Oops, there we go. Okay. And then we can see these orbs again, come in. I'm just going to show the whole thing. It's only one minute long, right? This happens very fast. Our orbs get around this plane in like 15 seconds. We got three orbs around the plane and now they're in this triangle pattern and it looks like they're mapping the plane. They're in this, they're creating a sphere around the plane. It also looks like the movie Contact a little bit if you were to map it. It also looks like an atom with electrons flowing around it. Well, and they switch direction twice yep. right there. So once they get yep. a flow 
counterclockwise. They go back clockwise. Yeah, and watch this part again here, too. Look at the orbs. Look, you see these black trails? This yeah. line is in front of this orb. This line's not even behind the orb. This is in front of the orb here. So that would be indicative of what Bob Lazar said. They're creating an anti-gravity space in front. They're exactly. folding time and they're moving forward into it. Exactly. And so in that, and I was just actually just released a thing from Salvatore Pius's paper that explains this as well as essentially this is like a pulse that's using some type of vibrational effect to create this geodesic here, which is like its own gravity. And well, according to Lazar, it would be a very high end. It would be a, a stable version of a very unstable element, like element yeah. 115 or higher. Yep. Yeah. And I don't know if they necessarily need one element 115 for this. Like, it's hard to tell, but sure. You know, either way, they're creating this geodesic, right? And it gets to the first cloud here, and then the formation changes, and then they become vertical. And they stay vertical until we see this zap happen. Now, you can also tell from the thermal that there's a heat signature on the orb that's spinning around on its axis. We think this is the monopole, essentially the, the point where the laser or whatever is coming from. And uh, I would basically just missed it. It came so fast. Now, when we watch this thermal... This it looks so fake, man. It's crazy. Yeah. But if this is a technology we don't know about, what is it going to look like? Exactly. That's what a lot of yeah. people would argue, right? Yeah. And so, And we can talk a little bit more about that, but when we watch it happen here as well, what happens right before this zap is all these monopoles. They look like they converge. Through. Yeah, they do converge yeah. in the plane. Yeah. And in the last frame, the, the plane actually gets colder and it begins to blur and it actually shrinks a little bit as well. It gets a little bit smaller. It's hard to see in the full speed, but now it's just, you can see this actually now, this flash on the right side here accurately illuminates all the clouds which is very odd because if it was fake, you would think that's a very extensive detail to put in. These clouds are really, really detailed, right? So they would well, have and they're so close. They're clouds. just tens of meters from the plane. Yeah. And notice as well, the clouds don't really move here, which is indicative that we're not looking at a black hole and we're not looking at an explosion because, you know, you expect the clouds to either blast away or get sucked oh. in. I Black hole is a false narrative used using yeah. mathematics. So this is way, this is something much different. Yeah, so this is what we think is happening here is a transitional phase state change of the plane. The plane is changing states, and the camera can't even catch what happens next, which is this plane accelerates to a point where it just shoots off faster than we can even see. And well, and if it, the experiments have been done where they could do this with single mm -hmm. atoms. Um, yeah, exactly. In, in, uh, in transitional uh, foams. Yep, so, you got it. And so now what we see maybe here, that's baby steps that they're telling us they that we they could do it with an atom, but we don't know that 30 years they're 30 years advanced and they could do it with a plane. And this is the first test ever technology. of that technology. Could be one of the earlier ones, or it could be proven too. And maybe they're saving the people. It's hard. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna cut it there. Um I know that was a lot. That was like a lot of information. <laughs> and if you're just listening, I mean, it was helpful to see the video, but he actually does a fairly good job of kind of describing what we're looking at. Um, the question is, is it real, right? How do we feel? Yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing. It's certainly yeah. my, my instinct is to say it is real and it's some kind of advanced technology, but I Really don't know. I mean, all of these images are pretty fuzzy from our standpoint. Um, certainly wouldn't be hard to fake, but like, I don't know why. <laughs> Mike, you're muted. 
You're still muted, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. I was I, I forgot I muted. I was on the wrong page. My bad. Um, yeah, so this is interesting, right? This is like kind of one that captivated me. This is a very convincing story, okay? And I'm going to just like show something here. There's no uh, audio to it. But this is apparently a rendering without the plane moving, you know, just with the path of these orbs and the, you know, sort of pattern of it all. Oh, that's interesting. And, um, yeah, you know, I kind of went deep on this one, guys. I was like, huh. If you didn't pick up on it, this is Malaysian Airlines 370. Okay. I've got something to say about this. Yes. Especially after seeing this little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so the first thing that I thought of was the orbs. I have read somewhere um, that it's, well, there's a theory that these things are remote controlled, so quite Mm. possibly black ops. But from what I'm seeing here, there's a video for the listeners, there's a video of, like Mike just explained, it's the tracking of the orbs, so it's showing us the pattern of their path. And it certainly looks to me like they're scanning an object, you know, when... um, yeah, you know, when the 3D software and stuff, you've got to scan a person to make them make a, a model, a virtual model of them. Mm-hmm. Very geometrically uh, creating a sphere around the plane. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a very mathematical path by the look of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also, it reminded me of the orb that was passed around to eye scan everybody. Okay, so there's this orb thing going on. Do you know what I'm talking about? World coin. Absolutely not. I don't know anything about this. Oh, oh, okay. Well, all right. That's another rabbit hole sort of. There's some kind of crypto that you can earn by letting this orb scan your retina. It's called world coin. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been passed around to, well, I think it sort of started in third world countries because they're always the um, guinea pigs, aren't they? (laughs) Uh, There was... There was all sorts of um, carrots, so I think uh, they were given, you know, 50 bucks or whatever their currency is. Um, that's the carrot, you know. We'll scan your eyeball and we'll give you 50 bucks. I mean, a third world country, who's going to say no? Well, there's but, also, um, sorry, but there's also orbs that you see um, world leaders, like, putting their hands on in a ritualistic kind of fashion. And it seems very similar, like the orbs themselves look pretty similar. Um, and I don't know much about that either, but it's definitely a thing. Yeah, so all I'm saying is that the um, orb sort of reminded me of the scanner. So I, I feel that they're scanning the plane. Um, mm-hmm. That's actually, the... that's that's something that they kind of mention. I'm not going to play any more of that particular interview. This dude's been on a million podcasts in the last like month. Um He's Was like, he on the same Tripoli? Because I think I might have um, heard him on there, or maybe, something along this this airline. Yeah, um, he was on. I can't remember the guy's name, but he's an Asian guy that is like a truther guy. He went viral on TikTok. Um, but I'm very sus, honestly, of these people personally. And it took me a while to get there. I'm like, oh, they sound genuine. They sound like they're kind of like us, but. I, I, the, the further I went into it, anyways, I probably shouldn't have even given you my bias there. I'm going to show you something that I, I thought was really interesting with this, but I, I kind of cut you off there, Stella. Sorry. Did you have one more thing you wanted to say? Oh, there's a couple of little points I wanted to make. Yeah, go um, ahead. There's, there's some theories that the MH370 ended up in Diego Garcia, which is 
a military base out in the middle of nowhere. Well, not really nowhere, but it's away, tucked away. Um, there's some interesting things going on there, allegedly. Don't ask me what. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention was the fact that these ion batteries were in the cargo bay. Now, mm-hmm. from my perspective, or my experience, I should say, um, I distinctly remember you know, you, you go to any airline and you read that you can't store batteries in a cargo bay. So you have to carry, yep. have them in carry-on um, luggage, which I remember specifically because um, one of the trips I went on not so long ago, I, you know, I really loaded myself up with all my camera gear and everything and mm-hmm. had all my batteries and everything. And, and then I, I didn't realize that. So I had to take all the batteries and stuff out and load my pockets up. And I just had these oh, bulging, bulging oh. pockets <laughs> with batteries in them sitting on the plane. Luckily, it was only an hour flight. But um, so, yes, I know that. So I'm wondering why the batteries were in the cargo bay well, to start with. So um, they address it. It's basically that rule didn't come about until 2015. This happened in 2014. Oh, really? Uh, Lithium-ion batteries were pretty darn new. Yeah. Uh, So whatever year you flew, I'm assuming, you know, with all that camera gear, it was after 2015. Yeah, it was. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Again, they're presenting a compelling case, okay? And I'm not even going to... Let's say this. Okay, I'm skeptical. But I don't think that these are the guy, you know, he, this Ashton Forbes guy, I don't think he's the one that if the, if the video is fake, I don't think he made it. I think he's, I think he's sold. I think he believes. Mm -hmm. I think he's buying the ghost story. Okay. This is kind of my larger point, right? But it's a very convincing story. So watch this real quick. It's very interesting. We're not seeing anything. Oh, are you not? My bad. That audio kind of sucks too, doesn't it? Here you go. Um, so basically, I'll describe. They've got a knitting needle, and he's wiping it, kind of stroking it with a cloth, building up static electricity. Right. Okay? This is in like an experimental uh, sort of setup. They drop a, a droplet of water. I, this must be in like a vacuum or maybe not. I think it's that's like the bubble. point. That is a droplet. I was thinking a bubble too. But... Drop of water, is it? Okay. That is a droplet of water. This is under magnification, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is a knitting needle. Nothing more. And it's following a very similar pattern to the orbs we see in the video. And eventually sort of it's the electrostatic charge of the electricity built up on the needle by wiping it right by building up that static yep and the polarity of the water so this is a very kind of fascinating phenomenon i didn't know this kind of thing just can happen because i believe this is sort of gravity defying is what we're seeing i don't think this is in like a vacuum or like a zero gravity state this is this is some physics. It being sure displayed. looks like it should be. Yeah, but I don't I don't think it is. Maybe, maybe it's just the droplets are so small. Yeah, they're they're that's, that's they're weird, they're though. tiny little droplets. And it's they all concentrate around the area that he rubbed. Like yes. the needle is much longer, but they're concentrating on the surface that he rubbed. So like yeah, I'm watching... so they must be like a I don't know, some I'm not a 
electrician, but I'm assuming that they are maybe negatively charged while a knitting needle is positively charged or something like that. But it's really interesting how that, yeah, they're speeding up. It's like yeah. coming in like a, like a whirlpool motion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty interesting shit, right? Um, so it, mm. you know, I'm like going through all these little bits of information and it's all this Ashton Forbes guy. He's just been like on a, on a spree for the last couple of months and he's picked up some steam real, real lately. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced I'll say that. And I've got one more ghost ship from relatively modern times, world war two. Have you guys ever heard of, um, they call it the Philadelphia project. Yeah. Have you heard of it? Don't know a whole lot about it, but it was a disappearing ship apparently. Yes, exactly. Um, here, just a moment. Um, can I just say before we get into that, um, <clears throat> there is also the link to Project Bluebeam and the fake stuff that we're going to be shown, I suppose. And yep. I'm just going to say that for someone who's very good at CGI, or et cetera, that wouldn't have been very hard to pull off. Just saying. Right. Agreed. Agreed. I also, what you just showed us makes me wonder if like <clears throat> with the lithium ion batteries and stuff, if it could have attracted just, I don't know, something like birds, something from the air, but like it seems more controlled than that. Cause they didn't ever converge on the plane really. Did they? Yeah. Well, and so to be clear, like he, he says like, yeah, the battery uh, fire was contained to the cargo hold. It's built to withstand, uh, withstand fire. Um, and and the glowing orange that this supposed witness that saw a glowing orange plane, like he explained it as being the halon uh, system, the fire suppression system, you know, releasing this bromide gas and it basically working like a halogen bulb. I'm like, this is all kind of his. I don't know about his theory originally, but it's the theory that he's presenting. The mainstream theory was that the pilot was suicidal. <laughs> Mm. well yeah right whatever <laughs> so yeah i mean it's kind of it like i could seems see like to me from what they what they showed us it seems like if if anything the pilot was trying to save whatever passengers he had possibly uh um, yeah it could be a also probably panicking and couldn't land anywhere because he couldn't see because it was nighttime and all that there, there's a million possible reasons why a plane could go down um, and not really leave a whole lot of evidence if it hits in the ocean. You know, like, I don't know how much of that I get. Huh, who, who's to say? You would yeah. think you would find some evidence, but there really yeah. wasn't much. The first bits of evidence they found was like over a year later. As far as parts from the plane, supposedly when I heard the suicide theory, it just immediately came to mind that they killed himself. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> um, there was also, don't forget, there was also some very interesting people on the board, the passenger list. You're muted, Mike. The passenger, you're muted. Yeah, that, that is always <laughs> an interesting angle, the, the interesting people on board, yeah. huh? Yes, there was a bunch of um, uh, huh. scientists, I believe. And uh, there's also some interesting numbers as well. Just let me let me just read this bit I noticed. What was it? Yeah, I don't know. It's just me doing my numbers thing. Um, 227 passengers, passengers, which does add up to 11. <laughs> 227. So just this saying. is 
This is some website. <laughs> On a Muslim. Boeing 777, by the way. This is, a, uh, it's called Muslim News Magazine. <laughs> I don't know how reputable this is, but it says, with disappearance of Malaysian Airlines MH370, Jacob Rothschild becomes the sole owner of Freescale Semiconductors Patent. Oh, look at here. <laughs> what do you interesting, know? Interesting, interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the whole thing about the 20 like scientists and engineers definitely adds to the mystery of this story. Yes. And I, I guess I'll go ahead because I'm, you know, I'm trying to like weave things together here a little bit. I would posit the possibility that both things can be true at the same time. And I'll, what I mean when I say that is, I think maybe this this theory. I guess what I should have said is both things can be untrue at the same time. This theory could be bullshit, and so could the suicide theory there could be something to this story where that plane was in some way grounded and those scientists and, and engineers were basically disappeared along with everybody else or, or it could have just crashed. Yeah. I mean, they went back over Malaysia. A good parachuting opportunity was right there. Yeah. yeah. I don't know or, if that's even what's the or. other or, <laughs> or there was a bunch of scientists on board. And maybe it did go to um, yeah. Yeah. Diego Garcia, and maybe they did mm -hmm. go underground to do a whole bunch of experiments. Because I suspect as well that a whole bunch of these things, like the Titan, the submersible Titan. Right. I, I don't know. There's, there's lots of theories about that. But I do, one of my little I wonder if theories was, did they really die or did, were they actually taken elsewhere because I think there's a lot of people that sort of step down, go missing or what have you, mm -hmm. or just step down from certain places because they've played their part in the agenda yeah. and then they win themselves a place in the bunker. So yeah. that's what, that's my theory. About a lot Maybe of so. Things. Maybe that's honestly not a bad theory. Cause like that guy was like a billionaire, right? In the, in the submersible. There was a and, number of them. Yes. <laughs> oh, the yeah. guy that, yeah, the guy yeah. and his son, man, that was super son, rich. And um, if you wanted to fake your own death, it's not a bad way to do it. <laughs> you know, put on a spectacle, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. It was such a clown show. I mean, there's no way in the in the world. It just it yeah. doesn't. It's not common sense. There's no way in the world that those important people would go on something that's you know like a it's like a I don't know something off Doctor bomb. a Doctor Who set, you know. <laughs> Um, they so, weren't meant that what that vehicle wasn't meant to go down to the depths that it apparently went to for a start. So, I mean, who's yeah. going to risk that? That was just a big bunch of bullshit, I reckon. I almost want to like suggest perhaps they are using the mythology of ghost ships, of, of shipwrecks as a psyop of, of its own, you know, twisted mm -hmm. for the modern time. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Like, why why are these the ones that we hear about planes go down in the open ocean like every so often we very rarely have a big show of it it was the mystery of this story that captivated people right yeah very was, contrived well and it was you know why did we lose communications and why this and why did they turn and what happened and blah 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 and there was no debris and there was no you know there was a massive search and blah 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 so i mean it captivated people yeah it's and a great story it's a great story you can't tell me that with their supposed high-tech 
knowledge, high technology that they have in, you know, tracking satellites, etc. There's no way if they've got their eyes on the world in thousands of different places with satellites, mm-hmm. that would have been a easy peasy, you know, thing to find yeah. um, to track a <laughs> to track a little uh, <laughs> promo there to track um, a plane. That's well, you know they they do yeah. have those systems that basically film every square inch of earth and they can play back the data as they need they talk about that that's supposedly where one of these videos there's two side-by-side videos that are supposed to basically corroborate each other and one is from a satellite the other is from a drone and i i watched like multiple of his discussions and he you know he breaks down all of it it takes forever it's a lot of information it's a long long story I'm halfway inclined to say that the footage could be semi-genuine, but still doctored. Like maybe they were following this plane with a drone. Maybe it's a completely different plane and whatever. This footage is just total bullshit. But maybe it's the real footage of the actual plane from the satellite, from the drone following it. And this is the PSYOP beneath the PSYOP. They're like, okay, we've got all these skeptics. And we're going to just play with them with the UFO, like time travel portal thing and confuse them and think they're, you know, have them think they're onto something when we really just hijacked that plane and stole all them scientists. Yes. Because you know, that's uh, a better story. They, we don't want them to know what the real thing was. We're going to give them something that they can think was the real thing. Something for the conspiracy theorists to yeah. chew on. Yeah, they're always throwing out burly. Um, that's another thing. We don't know 100% whether those scientists and those passengers ever even got on the plane. And, you know, maybe mm-hmm. the plane itself was a drone. There's always that right. possibility. Yeah. So that it could, you know, play out this particular chapter in this story so that then they can create their, you know, support their narrative or take us take us wherever the destination is that they want us to be. So I'm going to, I'm going to, make the argument here that this is not a new psyop this this has been done before like i alluded to uh the philadelphia experiment this is deep within navy sort of lore and uh it's a well-known story from world war ii i'll just play this out we got william shatner um giving us the narration here so you know it's legit (laughs) oh come on 1943 At the height of World War II, the Atlantic Ocean was a dangerous battleground where German submarines frequently targeted American ships. To help protect Allied vessels, the United States Navy reportedly initiated a top-secret program that became known as the Philadelphia Experiment. The Philadelphia Experiment is a series of secret military projects, which took place in 1943 in the Philadelphia shipyard. At that time, the Navy was really interested in camouflaging its ships. The original idea that the Navy had was to actually make the ship radar invisible. The Philadelphia experiment involved a US Navy destroyer that underwent the most strangest of experiments, with the concept being that if the ship were surrounded by incredibly intense electromagnetic fields, could 
it distorted our vision of it enough that it became invisible. As the story goes, on October 28, 1943, government scientists wrapped a fully crewed ship named the USS Eldridge in a cage of electrified copper wire and began the experiment. But then everything went terribly wrong. Supposedly, after the switch was thrown, all hell broke loose. The ship was encased in fog. Everyone was running around the decks, screaming in panic mode. No one knew what was happening. At that point, the USS Eldridge vanished in a green mist, only to reappear in the Norfolk, Virginia shipyard, disappear again, then, about three hours later, reappear in Philadelphia. This is witnessed by a merchant mariner called Carl M. Allen, who claims that he saw it vanish in the green mist before returning to the same spot. Then in Virginia, some people witnessed the ship appear there and vanish there as well. So what is going on here? When the ship was boarded, it was found that the sailors were in horrible condition. Many were dead, and others were found to be embedded in the bulkhead of the ship, still alive. Some of the crew seemed to be almost frozen in time or stuck within parts of the ship and unable to actually get out, which seems to suggest the alleged teleportation involved with the Philadelphia experiment, that it had actually warped space-time itself. According to reports that surfaced years after the catastrophic experiment, the USS Eldridge was not only transported across hundreds of miles, but it also seems to have somehow traveled decades into the future. Allegedly, the ship was actually catapulted through time and space, a completely unexpected result, appearing at various locations like Chicago in 1969 and Lake Mead in 1983, only to disappear and to continue across the time stream uncontrolled. The Eldridge just randomly skipped across time, achieving a rough form of time travel. Wow. What do you think? I think William Shatner is controlled for a start. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Star Trek, come on. Right. So uh, he's all part of it, but we love him anyway, don't we? That's why they use him. <laughs> it's, it's quite a story. If it's yeah. real, it's really something. But um, yeah, I, I reserve my doubts. <laughs> yep, yep, fair, fair enough. Um, yeah, again, captivating tale, captivating tale. And it, sorry, what what year was the Philadelphia experiment? It was World War Two, so in the forty three. I want to say forty three. Mm-hmm. There's also, um, well, I mean, we're on ships at the moment, but there is also you probably know about the. Um, there's a couple of couple of different planes that went missing and turned up 37 years later, and yep, there's another one it's, 53 years later. It's the You're ghost get ship, to that, aren't you? Yeah, it's the ghost <laughs> ship. It's the ghost ship. You know, like it. I I don't have a whole lot of examples, but it's this is a this is an ancient story being 
fed back to us in a new way. Yeah, but don't forget, you know, that's sort of, that's a few decades on from where they, you know, the, well, the agenda was kind of starting to be formed. You, you know, sure like, about that? Well, no, I'm not sure about bloody anything, <laughs> <laughs> to be quite honest. <laughs> but, you wasn't know, I mean, World the, War, wasn't World War II just one more big psyop? It was an economic stimulus plan that's, yeah, from that's sort of America's what I mean. standpoint, anyway. I mean, um, let's say, you know, the Fed was developed in 1913, and that was all, you yeah. know, a big part of unfolding a big agenda and everything. So, and we've had the Rothschild family, Rothschild family, among others. Yeah. Right. And we you talked know, about the ones we know their names are probably not even the ones in charge. I mean, how far back do you, I, I figure it goes back a ways. Yeah. 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 Oh, for sure. I mean, I personally feel I, I know who their master is. You know how um, a lot of sci-fi novels uh, slash dystopian ones like 1984 um, from the past, they seem to come true. And it's like, oh, these people have got some connections or whatever. But uh, or or maybe it's a model. Um, I read the Narnia series recently, and I don't think C.S. Lewis is like an opera or anything, but they travel to a place where they like lapse through time. And the whole Narnia series is based around like time travel and stuff. And there, there is um, that nautical aspect to it of like getting on a ship and going somewhere. that's like into a different world. Yeah. Um, like I said, I, I, I've been fascinated with, sort of the soul of boats and whatnot since I was a kid that always captured my imagination, right? Still does. Mysteries always do. They're fun. Right. Right. You know, I feel like I, there were a few other clips that I thought about sharing that I'm going to kind of skip over as far as the MH370. Um, yeah, see, they know this too. They know that human curiosity is extremely strong. I mean, C.S. Lewis did he he wrote Alice in Wonderland, did he not? Oh, sorry, who was it that did um, Narnia? Narnia. Um, oh, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I got, it, so I got it sitting right it's, here. It's not the same person that did Alice in Wonderland. Okay, who wrote Alice in Wonderland? How ignorant mm. of me! I should know that. Yeah, me anyway. too. Anyway. <laughs> you got me confused now. <laughs> like uh, it was one of them. <laughs> both. I mean. It, you know, in in Chronicles of Narnia, there's a book that exclusively pretty much takes place on a boat, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It was yep. actually one of my, it was probably my favorite because I love boats. Kind of the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny because yeah. I had a buddy in like. With mermaids and everything. <laughs> fuck yeah, dude. I mean, that's another great, you know, sort of legend of the sea, right? The mm. mermaid, kind of like the siren, uh, yeah. luring sailors to their demise, right? And the haunted aspect of things is a very like, that's sort of what I'm, what I'm kind of interested with about flight 370 is that it haunts us in a, in a way. Yeah. Um, right. I just it's still, it's say, still being discussed anyways. Yeah. Just back to the human curiosity thing. I think, I mean, they know this, so they throw these things out because it's basically like starting a bonfire in a dry paddock, isn't it? They just put a match to one blade of grass and poof, off it goes. And that in itself, all that talk and all the, you know, it becomes Chinese whispers because people speculate and then speculation turns into supposed fact that gets repeated. And in the meantime, 
everyone's so busy with all these different things they've thrown out there that no one's really looking at what they should be looking at, which is, you know, the, the actual core of where all this stuff is coming from. Pre-2020, people are waking up now, obviously, but up until this point, no one really thought too much. Not no one. 99.95% of us didn't think to look at the core of who is actually controlling the world. So I'm just saying this, you know, there's a lot of distractions out there and there's a dime a dozen. Yeah. You know, I guess to me, my, my sort of epiphany when going through these topics, it was really fun putting this little outline together. I got to say, um, I, I kind of realized I'm like, the interesting thing about sort of, oh man, how do I even say it? I was right on it. This is a, it's kind of a tough one to say. It might have to come back to me later, but like, I'm going to, I'm going to use these three sort of sources to, to try to make my point. You know, I'm not even going to be able to put it in a sentence probably till the very, very end. I was so damn close though, but the, these stories are powerful. I guess I'll leave it at that for now. God, my brain. They're I'm alluring. Stoned. They're alluring. I'm stoned. I'm stoned and I'm, crea- <laughs> I'm creating suspense by, by my stoniness. Um, yeah, I kind of wish Rob was here because he'd have a very um, scientific sort of input, you know. Well, yeah. so we're yeah. – I'm going to try to take it from myth to something a little more concrete than myth, but it's still like at, at no point am I solving any of these mysteries here. I love these mysteries, but they're unsolvable, and that's kind of why they are so powerful. But let me let me show you one that's a little more skeptical about the Philadelphia experiment. Oh, this guy. Mm. Are you not a fan? <laughs> I think it's controlled too. <laughs> really? Well, this is a little more a little more skeptical, but anyways, I think I, I, I thought his presentation was interesting. October 28, 1943, the day the U.S. Navy mastered time travel, teleportation, and visibility. Whoa! Actually, they didn't master anything. The experiment had disastrous consequences. Oh, I'm going to need my tinfoil hat. Oh, you certainly are. Let's find out why. Welcome to the Y-Files, where cool nerds like us laugh and learn. In the summer of 1943, two years after the U.S. entered World War II, American destroyers were being decimated by the infamous German U-boat submarines, and German mines were making combat and commerce dangerous enterprises. So the U.S. Navy knew something had to be done. A few months later, on October 28, 1943, the USS Eldridge, a cannon-class destroyer, was docked in the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard, and the Eldridge held some secrets. It was a newly commissioned vessel that was equipped with several large generators as part of a top secret mission to win the Battle of the Atlantic once and for all. Now, rumor aboard the ship was that the generators were designed to power a new kind of magnetic field that would make the warship invisible to enemy radar and undetectable to enemy mines. So with the full crew aboard, it was time to test the system. And in broad daylight, in plain sight of nearby ships, the switches were thrown on the powerful generators which hummed to life. What happened next was unexpected, and it would baffle scientists and fuel decades of speculation. Witnesses described a murky green fog that surrounded the entire hull of the ship and then swallowed it whole. And then when the fog faded away seconds later, the Eldridge wasn't just invisible to military radar. It was invisible to everyone. It was gone. Invisibility. That is, until it mysteriously turned up in Norfolk, Virginia, 
That's a distance of about 250 miles. Teleportation. And the strangest part, when it arrived in Virginia, it was 10 minutes earlier in the day than when it disappeared from Philadelphia. Time travel. Then the Eldridge reappeared in Philadelphia 20 minutes later, or 10 minutes later, because of the whole time travel thing. It's hard to tell. Either way, it came back. But something had gone terribly wrong. Here it comes. According to reports, when the ship rematerialized, members of the Eldridge crew suffered from terrible burns and disorientation. And some of its crew had been fused into the metal walls at the molecular level. Unable to free their skin from the metal that it clung to, they died in agony. Other members of the crew just went insane. And some of the crew disappeared altogether. Whoa. You okay, bud? Uh, I, I feel kind of funny. Hmm. This should be easier now. So when the news broke that a naval ship had mastered invisibility with grisly results, many believed it. And this was an age of war-fueled paranoia. Americans felt that true evil was out there, so it wasn't difficult to get people speculating about the impossible. This was fertile ground for conspiracy theories. Remember, Roswell is only a few years away. So the unexplainable, the unidentifiable, the unbelievable now seemed achievable. It's unsurprising that some Americans clung to the idea of a vanishing warship. But did it really happen? While the USS Eldridge did exist at the time, it wasn't in Philadelphia that day, or Virginia for that matter. According to the ship's logs, it was actually in New York. But this isn't to say that the Philadelphia experiment has zero credibility. There's actually something to this. I mean, we know for a fact that in October 1943, in Philadelphia, the government was up to something. Hecklefish is back, baby. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a little break there. Um, I do want to let him make his argument, but I don't like Hecklefish. I'll say that. He's kind of annoying. <laughs> yeah, I think he represents the uh, public memory, personally. I think they have yeah, a little saw your, to get us. We've had a few little revelations in the comments, so I figured they were worth addressing. Very interesting, yes, that Alice in Wonderland was written by Lewis Carroll, while Chronicles of Narnia was C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Lewis C. C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, who oh. knows? It could be an inversion. That's what I was. Oh, you, you, you didn't realize. Okay, that's what I was meaning. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I just think that you know they invert everything. Um, I think. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. I think their writing styles are pretty different. I, I yeah, don't think they're well. the same person. It's a, it's a, co- a coinky dink. We'll just call but, it a coinky dink. Yeah. It I doesn't mean say, it doesn't specifically mean it was written by the same person, but it could no. be um, right a yeah. link, a link in a puzzle piece, two yeah, puzzle yeah. pieces sort of thing. I mean, you know in I mean? a in a way, like Alice in Wonderland is a psychedelic version of the same kind of story, right? Yeah, coming I mean, down the rabbit hole. Yeah, because yeah. of curiosity. Right. Right, which is you know, which is what they target us with, and I just want to know one more thing with the Philadelphia experiment. How come they haven't tried to repeat it, or have they, like with a, bun- a ship full of dummies or something? Well, I about, mean, politicians maybe. I don't know. How about well, yeah. How about a plane full of you know, scientists, Democrats? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's what I, it's a very similar. There's there's clearly a lot of parallels, right? I'm not I'm not fishing in the dark here, I hope. 
Yeah, one thing I'll say is I don't put it past them to fry a bunch of sailors. They clearly yeah. would do that. Yep. In, in whatever their either. experiment would be. Um, right. But yeah, the whole popping up in different locations and even years later and stuff is pretty strange. Yeah, but how much proof is there of that? <laughs> exactly, I mean, even if, yeah. even if they had... Um... <laughs> Even if they had photos, which they just showed a couple of photos of people, you know, half into, like, swallowed into the deck of a ship or whatever. Right. Easy peasy to, um, again, easy hey. peasy to <laughs> um, <laughs> fake them. So even in that day, day and age, you know. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I used to, whenever people around me would be like, would say easy peasy casually, I'd be like, hey. And now I'm just like, I try to ignore it. I'm like, it happens, it happens too much, you know? And half the time it's a stranger and I don't want to just be like, hey, like, that's, that's my business, bro. Let me tell you about my business, you know? Although it is good marketing, I suppose. Uh, we had a comment from our viewer, one of our viewers. Uh, Brucey, Brucey, hey. Yeah, you know, you know, Good Brucey. to have you. Yeah, yeah, he's one of our unknowns. Awesome, awesome. He says the fish is cool, but the guy is sus. I, you know, <laughs> you might be right. It's just the fish voice. Fish is kind of cute. Yeah. 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 Should we, uh, should we rock on with this a little longer? Yeah, why sure. not? In the 1940s, the U.S. Navy was indeed conducting experiments aimed at mastering invisibility. And some of these experiments happened at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard, but it wasn't actual invisibility they were working on. The plan was to make U.S. ships invisible to underwater German mines. And at the time, Germans used the Gauss as the unit of strength of the magnetic field in their mines' triggers. Various processes used to counter the mines was called degaussing. The original method of degaussing was to install electromagnetic coils onto ships, but installing this equipment was expensive and difficult, so the Navy developed an alternative method called wiping, where a large electrical cable was dragged along the side of a ship with a pulse of about 2,000 amps. And wiping altered or muted a ship's magnetic field, which allowed it to avoid detection by mines. But degaussing was impermanent. As a ship travels through the Earth's magnetic field, it will slowly pick up that field, counteracting the effects of degaussing. So ships had to be degaussed on a schedule, kind of like getting your oil changed, but way cooler. Now, using these various techniques, Allied ships were pretty well protected until 1943, but Germany was catching on, so new techniques were pursued to try to stay one step ahead. Though there's no official explanation from the Navy, of course, it appears that these new techniques were being developed in Philadelphia at the time. Still, as far as we know, they were not experimenting with time travel. What? Did you just say the government was not experimenting with time travel? Yes, why? Montauk Project, Camp Hero, does it ring a bell? It rings a bell. Thank you. Speaking of ringing a bell, hit the notification bell and we'll let you know when our Montauk Project video is up. Smooth. Y'all ever heard of the Montauk Project? I have, but I couldn't tell you what it is. No, no I, I briefly looked it up, but if somebody wants to do a quick search and illuminate us, that could be interesting. You on that bear or? Oh yeah, I can do it if you want. Montauk right. project. Um, something just occurred to me too that I'm wondering if they, they, the military made a big experiment, and it went horribly wrong, and the electromagnetic frequencies or what have you, power, energy, 
fried the soldier, uh, the um, sailors, and they had to sort of cover that up. It's like, oh, we really screwed that one up, didn't we? So uh, we'll just make up this thing. I don't know. It's just another possibility I'm throwing into the hat there. As as we know from lore, the, there are circumstances where an entire crew can die on a ship. And that's where the, you know, it's like the truth within the myth. Like ghost ships do happen. I'm almost just my gut instinct with Malaysia flight 370. I think it might have been a ghost plane that was just flying around with a bunch of dead people in it. And it took a dive, you know, eventually or whatever. And they didn't want to. I don't know. That That's just one theory, right? Mm. You know, and that's just so unpleasant. And who knows? Maybe it was done for a purpose. Like by somebody and they had to, you know, create this myth, this mythos. The kidnapping theory is also possible, in my opinion. But anywho, it's... um. It's playing on this myth of the ghost ship at, at the very least. And there, there's truth to the myth. That's, I guess, my point. So, yeah, maybe this whole, you know, one of these ships, it drew, drove them all crazy, legit. And, like, that's the part of the story that's true. When they were boarded, like, there were people screaming in agony and, like, rolling around on the decks, but it got mythologized, right? Mythologized. Well. If they'd have had their brains fried by electromagnetic energy, they would be breathing in pain, writhing in pain and in agony, in my opinion. So it possibly is a cover-up of an ex- experiment that went horribly wrong or went horribly right, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. Got to break some eggs to make an omelet. You know, this, is the, this is the Navy. And, and maybe even it was both. Yeah. Yeah, and um, when you were showing that, previous video and they were showing the ships um sorry for the people only listening i'll try to describe it there was a couple of ships they were um, experimenting with um, camouflage so one of them sort of seemed to have a paint job on it that looked like you know camouflage like we'd see in the military uniforms Um, and the other one was lots of different stripes different patches of stripes sort of it almost looked a bit fake to me but maybe maybe it was real and actually um, I i i think i know what that was for wasn't that to try to cheat radar or something? But it just reminded well, me of the the Epstein Island structure and the stripes, which goes back to ancient Egypt. My my thought on that was it's actually um, for intelligence sake. So like when and I I'll, I'll say this because I know when a car manufacturer has like a new concept car, that's like. What they they want to build the hype for it, but they don't want to show what it looks like. So it's in it, it's in the stage of being at the very least like road tested, the the prototype versions. But they'll cover it with that kind of a weird pattern, and it's basically just to obscure. You know, it'd be like I I thought that could be like a new type of warship that they didn't want like spies to be able to make heads or tails of. Yeah, if they were trying to confuse radar, they said that they were trying to like disguise it. That's part of like the whole angle. That's kind of yeah. what I thought too. Is those stripes yeah. were meant to confuse cameras or mm. or something, some kind of detection yeah. thing. 
Yeah. Yes, because it certainly wasn't camouflaging it as far as like just seeing it with the naked eye goes, was it? It was like made it stand right. out. Right. So, but it looked very different than the regular naked battleship too. Mm-hmm. But that is that because of the strange stripes that made it look different. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's I'm saying. Optical, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like a psychological camouflage, I guess you might call it. Well, it's hard. It's, it's hard to reason. A, I don't know. Like, might go further than that. I mean, I, I'm not sure what the you know we don't know what the paint was made out of. It could have been made out of a certain material that deflected radar or something like that. Um, I don't know how any of it works, to be honest. No, but... me either. Yeah, you'd think with a metal ship, if you're charging the surface, you're going to be charging the entire ship, right? Yeah, which might fry people on it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well. Oh, we forgot to ground it or something. I don't know. Like, whoops. <laughs> yeah, whoopsie-daisy. Everybody's oh, fine. did your boots wear through? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does sound oh, sorry, like... Did you, sorry, did your face up. melt into the wall? <laughs> sorry about <laughs> right. that. Right, whoopsie-daisy. Well, let's go on a little longer. So, how did the Philadelphia Experiment legend get started in the first place? Well, it all began in 1955, when a man named Morris Jessup received a mysterious letter in the mail. Jessup, who had a master's in astronomy, had recently published a book called The Case for the UFO, where he discussed unidentified flying objects and the exotic means of propulsion that they might use. The book caused quite a stir. After all, it was written by an actual scientist who seemed to believe in aliens, or at least he didn't want Americans to close their minds to the idea altogether. And UFO fanatics loved this book. It's on my Kindle. I figured. For them, it was proof that this idea of aliens was worth exploring. It gave this group of believers credibility, and they were ecstatic. The fan mail started pouring in. People wrote letters of strange sightings, of new theories, of big ideas. Eventually... Someone named Carlos Allende penned a letter of his own, and this letter would start a cascade of rumors, theories, and speculation that still fascinate believers in secret technologies and government cover-ups. In his letter, Allende claimed that he was standing on a merchant ship in October of 1943. USS Eldridge was docked nearby. Allende watched as the ship vanished into a murky green cloud. He told Jessup that it then showed up in Virginia 10 minutes earlier in time before returning back to Philadelphia. Its crew fused to the steel bulkheads. Those who weren't killed, he wrote, were mad as hatters. Naughty. Allende also wrote that he knew the science behind how the incident occurred. The U.S. Navy, he explained, had realized Einstein's unified field theory in which electromagnetism and gravity merge into a single field. So could Allende be trusted? Well, probably not. Allende, as it turned out, was using a pseudonym, though it's not clear why. His real name was Carl Allen, and he was fascinated with UFOs, aliens, and Jessup's work. He became a stan who wrote Jessup about 50 letters. Allen had indeed been stationed at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard at the time of the alleged incident. But if the Eldridge wasn't even there, what was he talking about? Allen's letter was downright bizarre. And not just because of what he claimed to witness. His writing was rambling and strange, almost nonsensical. Like some of your videos. Allende, a.k.a. Allen, wrote that most of the men had not survived. He said one sailor walked through his quarter's wall in full sight of his family and then just disappeared. The other crew members also vanished. He said two burst into flames and burned for 18 days. His account was chilling, but also a little hard to follow. But still, Jessup decided to give the man a chance. So he wrote back to Alan and asked for proof. When his next letter consisted of more crazy ramblings, Jessup just ignored it. 
But a year later, two officers from the newly formed Office of Navy Research, also known as the ONR, showed up at Jessup's doorstep. Men in black? They might have been. The ONR is the part of the Navy in charge of scientific research and special projects. A visit from them is not going to be good news. A copy of Jessup's book, The Case of the UFO, had been mailed to them and it looked suspicious. It had annotations from three people who called themselves the Gypsies. And the Gypsies wrote about the Philadelphia experiment and even claimed that aliens had made the ship vanish that day. Goldie. You didn't. Jessup recognized Alan's handwriting right away. He used different color ink and tried to fake the handwriting of three fictional people, even claiming one was an alien. And Alan later admitted that he did this. Still, the fact that the ONR took these annotations seriously was a red flag to some conspiracists. I mean, if the Philadelphia experiment never happened, why would the ONR care about this book at all? Well, remember how the U.S. Navy was conducting invisibility tests that year? It's likely Alan's accounts were suspiciously similar to real events. I guess the lesson is, if you have theories about secret government experiments, best not to publicize them. Do you feel that? Would you put your hat on, please? I'm begging you. Okay. He gets a little whatever about it. But the introduction of the characters at play here is interesting to me. And I actually read like a lot about this um, Jessup guy, the author, I believe. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I'm remembering precisely right. One of these guys, one of these two guys. So we have a witness and this UFO author. And the witness is the guy who claims to have seen the ship disappear, right? It's where the origin of the story comes from, supposedly. One of them gets fucking suicided. And I, I, I think he gets to that. I just didn't like what he was doing with all that bullshit. All right, here we go. Show Any thoughts? in the back of the head? Yeah, yeah. Twice? Yeah, well no, no, no. He they found him in a car with the uh with a hose pumped to the fucking interior. You know, car running. Supposedly there's some confusion as to whether or not he died in a pub like a public park parking lot or at his house in his garage. Like there's some disputed I don't know, like there's a weird story to I believe it was the author that got yeah, it was. It was the author who got suicided. Anywho, let's. Let, I, I'm pretty sure he tells he tells his side of this story, but I read some more beyond this. His career as a writer was faltering. After the stunning popularity of his first book, Jessup wrote a second, but this one did not fly off the shelves. He tried one more time, but his third book was such a failure that his publishers dropped him altogether. So Jessup was desperate to reclaim some of that fame, and he saw an opportunity in the Philadelphia experiment. He began assembling research of Allen's claims and collected any information and possible proof that he could find, and it became an obsession for him. Then in 1958, he gave his research to a friend, Ivan Sanderson, and he spoke ominously, begging Sanderson to keep the research safe, quote, just in case something happens to me. Uh-oh. Did something happen to him? Well... On April 19th, 1959, Jessup called his friend Manson Valentine, which is a pretty cool name. Anyway, he told Valentine that he'd made a breakthrough in his findings, and he wanted to meet with him the next day so he could share the news in person. And? And he never showed up. No. Jessup was found dead in his car that day, April 20th, the result of carbon monoxide poisoning. No. Yep. 
There was a hose lodged into the exhaust pipe that filled the car with toxic gas, and washcloths were pressed into the windows to keep any fumes from leaving the car. Though officials said he took his own life, no autopsy was ever performed. Of course not. Jessup's death was definitely clouded in mystery. Had he come too close to finding something? Did someone need to get rid of him? I mean, there are a lot of theories about what happened to Jessup, and I'll link to some of those below. Jessup had been depressed in the years and months leading up to his death. His books weren't selling, his wife left him, he'd been in a serious car accident that left him with chronic pain, so it's possible he died by his own hand. Still, it's unlikely that a military ship really vanished into a mysterious green fog, as fun as it is to speculate. So then the real mystery is about us. What does the Philadelphia experiment say about our willingness to believe in what we can't explain? our need for something mysterious, for conspiracies to exist. It seems that the unknown will always have some kind of power over humanity. And as in the cases of Carl Allen, Morris Jessup, and countless others, the quest for answers might drive us to madness or worse. Would you please? Bingo, he just said it. Our curiosity basically is the power that they have over us. Yes, pretty much. Because we they, love they're going to use that. Because we love a good story. We mm -hmm. fucking love it. Even yeah, if it's it, grotesque, you know? And it just invites so much speculation. And, you know, lack of clarification invites speculation, no matter what when, it is. So it's going to be enough to gray the water, you know, muddy the waters. Yeah. And keep everyone interested for a while. And when in doubt, that. When in doubt, induce or like seed doubt, right? Totally. Yeah. Yep. If you don't want the truth to get out, if the truth has gotten out and you don't want it out there, the only thing you can really do about it, you can't retrieve it. You can only muddy the waters, which so easy. Yeah. I mean, Vegas and 9-11 and all these things, all these events that happen, they seem very muddied. Mm -hmm. So uh, was, there, oh, go ahead, Stella. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll keep butting in. No, not at all. <laughs> I just wanted to call out just while I had, the thought in my head. Um, I actually contacted Monica Perez, our pod mother from the, mm -hmm. for the unions of the mm -hmm. unknowns and uh, Monica and Brad Binkley and um, asked her whether she had seen this, you know, the thing about the orbs going around the planes and everything. She's actually going to, she's going to address this. So anyone who's interested to hear Monica, she's got a really good, what she calls truth dar. So mm -hmm. it's like her radar for the truth. And I really trust that she's often spot on. Nearly all the time. So, um, yeah, anyone who's interested in hearing a little bit of a dive on that, just keep your eye out for Monica's deep dives in the near coming episodes. Yeah, Thank I'll do that. Thank you for letting me say that. Mm -hmm. So, Bear, I was going to bring up the Montauk project. What you What'd you dig up here? So, it looks like, I mean, I... I was trying to find some stuff as well as pay attention to you guys with the videos and stuff. It can be tough. Um, I found a couple links. One of them is the Wikipedia, which basically says conspiracy, conspiracy theorists say it was a psychological experiment, you know, um, and it did have to do with things like time travel. Apparently, Stranger Things, the Netflix series is based on it. So hmm. there's something, but that also incorporates, of course, a bunch of fantasy as well. I think it's interesting because both Stranger Things and um, the Pirates of the Caribbean 
series have this idea of the upside down world, which is Mm -hmm. it's kind of like being under the ocean, how there's like another world under the ocean, sort of like a mirror world or Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, I think that's an interesting concept that um, is prevalent in modern media, fantasy media. But uh, it is interesting if they're doing experiments with time travel and stuff, what relation might these things have? What other um, dimensions or realities or whatever might be in play? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yep, that takes me to the Terramar project, which was um, Ghislaine Maxwell's thing that got shut down um, when she was arrested. Uh, but that also led to, I think it was called the Arctic Circle, which was another sort of group involved in that same Terramar project thing, which involved some interesting people too. I think it was Prime Minister of the Netherlands or something. I can't even remember who it was, but it was someone else. I just remember thinking, huh, that's interesting person to have in that. So, yeah, I mean, who knows what's going on down there. Whatever it is that's going on, they're not going to tell us what it is. So they're going to make up all this other stuff that's really muddy and keeps us all speculating so that we don't actually get to the core of what they're actually doing. So I do believe there's a huge, huge complex under the ground, under the, which includes under the ocean. There's, there's been a lot of um, stuff running around lately about land grabs and also um, ocean real estate. Yes. Yes. We were talking about that last time and that was about putting the servers um, under the water for cooling, et cetera. um, Mm. Much bigger than what they're showing us, I believe. Well, and uh, you got the benefit of if you can build something out in international waters. That's exactly right. You don't have to follow the rules. Yep, mm-hmm. that's right. That's another reason they did it was because it t- took them out from underneath the Constitution. That's what they used to do in the old days with pirate radio. They'd um, they, right. broadcast yeah. from ships just into the international waters, just into it so that they weren't makes, bound by rules. Makes you again think about the Bermuda Triangle and you know, all the people that have disappeared yeah yeah, i mean again i'm like i'm i'm logic brain saying probably most of them just crashed because of weather conditions or what have you um bird strikes you know all that crap but i don't know i did see one theory about the bermuda triangle that they said oh it's been debunked and i don't know if it's true but um the fact that there's a lot of very heavy currents in that area so that when things go down they're not anywhere near where they actually went down. They've get they've been taken a long way further away, and they don't they're not really looking in the right place. So that's one theory. Who knows? That could make sense. It could. Bruce Knee Ooh. went went Bruce snorkeling in the Bermuda Triangle. Glad Bruce you made died. it out alive. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Thank I, I did that in the Gulf of Mexico, and that's close enough for me, I guess. <laughs> Well, you know, Stella Q, I'm hoping, I guess we'll see. I, I will be also curious to hear um, Monica Perez talk about this thing. Mm. But I have a, a supposed debunking. Okay? okay. These two videos, supposedly showing three UFOs abducting Malaysian flight MH370, were released in 2014, but recently got popular again on Reddit. I was unable to debunk them because I didn't try. They were old, low-resolution, anonymous videos released on anonymous clickbait sites. They also looked ridiculous. I thought analyzing them would be a waste of time, just a distraction flooding the zone, much like the Las Vegas alien nonsense. 
But the videos were still eventually debunked in multiple ways, mostly on Reddit. There was also an extensive discussion thread on Metabunk, but not everyone reads Reddit or Metabunk. People are still asking me to look into them. So this video is just a quick summary of the ways in which we know the videos are fake. First, this portal effect was found by Redditor IcySlide7698 to be made using modified stock footage from the 1990s. It's impossible for all these curves along the edges to match by accident. And in comparisons between other frames, we see the internal details match. We know the stock footage is that old because it was used in a 1995 game called Killing Time for a portal effect. The stock footage is also used in the fake satellite video as found by Redditor Happy Grammy, where an overexposed version of this frame matches the portal effect. That should be enough. But then we also have the stabilization issue, where if we stabilize the plane, then the contrails jump around. I've looked at thousands of videos of contrails, and they just don't do this. This must be a tracking and compositing error, and also shows that the video is fake. There are a bunch of other issues, like the supposed stereo version being the same image left and right, just with a manual distortion. There are issues with the frame rate. The drone footage seems to be using a 3D model. The satellite footage is static when we'd expect motion from parallax with the clouds and several other things. But really, the fact that both videos use stock footage should be all you need to demonstrate that these videos are what they appear to be, silly fakes, a distraction upon which I shall waste no more time. All right. I mean, so there's that. The fakes or the uh, stock footage does seem to line up. It does look if like that. If and it's, it's real. Pretty, yeah, yeah. It's pretty kind of silly that they, they often do this, that they use things like stock footage so that somebody does find it. It's because I mean, if they really, really, really wanted to fool us and not have us find out, they wouldn't be using stock footage, would they? I mean, it's just common sense, really. Well, Somebody's going to find it, and that's what they want, so that we can go blah, 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 and you know be distracted again, and trying to debunk mm. all this stuff <laughs> like we're doing right now. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean that is we're kind of analyzing the analyzers at this point. Mm. That's why I'm just I'm trying to come at it from this like I'm trying to put it in almost anthropological perspective as far as how. Like, like, if these stories are all bullshit, if it's bullshit on every side, how do we like suss out the truth? How do we understand like how the manipulation works on a basic sort of mechanical sort of level, right? Like, how does it? How how do these power games and these stories and these mythologies, you know, affect us? Just keep us distracted, really. Yeah. yeah, it's a good question. And I'm, I'm very agnostic about the, the reality of these situations. But um, <clears throat> I certainly think that this stuff can be used to distract us for sure. Like you said, Stella, um, from what matters, which is like what's right in front of us, you know, in, in real life, when we step away from the screen, um, you you've got your like, local community who might be putting some agenda into their schools or some other, like you've got your local challenges, you know, um, maybe, maybe it's more worth concentrating on, um, being part of the land and part of, uh, your own like community rather than worrying about what the hell these people might be doing. And it's very fascinating. So I don't like blame anybody. And I, 
certainly listened to plenty of podcasts along these lines where it's it's very fascinating to like go down these rabbit holes a little bit and be like, oh man, what what could they be doing? What what is this stuff? Um but yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. Um that footage that they just showed too on the debunking video, um, they said in the original one, I think it was here today that you showed. Anyway, they said that the trail that was coming out of the back of the plane was smoke, not chemtrail. Yeah, it was on this one, the first mm -hmm. one that you showed. Um, mm -hmm. But whereas just then, I just I saw two trails, like they were coming from the wings, not the tail, like the first video showed. So, And the other yeah. thing is, why are these images so low res? You know, they've got all this amazing technology and everything's always low res, you know, like, oh, here's well, the footage I've that heard, proves I've, it. It's all really low resolution. People... I've heard people say basically it's a screenshot of a screenshot of a screenshot of a screenshot at this point. Right. Mm. But I don't know, man. I don't know. Yeah. I'm like, the, even if it was, as, even if it was, there would still be better definition than that. Cause it's not, it's not all videotape days where you have generation loss per copy. Digital right. is almost no loss. I mean, well yeah. off a screen. Yeah. It's not going to be real good, but it's not going to, it's a different kind of resolution look than those videos when you mm -hmm. take something off a screen. Yeah, it's just a it's just a mind fuck. Yeah, like yeah, it's just a mind fuck. Uh, they're Very just playing, they're just playing with us, you know. Yes, they are, and they have to show these things like stock using stock footage or using numbers or using names and things that we have to sit here and figure out like a puzzle and break the code because as exactly what we're just say, saying it keeps us busy. And Bear made a good point, even down to local level. Because that's actually where things matter, really, probably the most. We can't do much about the WEF and the United Nations, but we can sort of have a little bit of a say, perhaps, in our local councils. So Right. Yeah, you know, I. Uh, that's the thing. It's like as captivating as a story as this is, right? Um, yeah, I don't buy it. I don't think I buy it. But I, I think there's, some, there's there's something else at play. Like otherwise, it wouldn't be such a massive story. That's yes, that, and that, like that seems highly likely. That the ones that get fed to us are the ones that they need a story. They they add to the confusion. Yeah, the yeah, malu. Sure. <laughs> and again, I mean, I've said this ad nauseum, but when they tell us to look up at something, we have to look down. So it's probably whatever's going on in the ocean. They're trying to keep our eyes up, you know. Mm. That could be, yeah. As Good above, point. So below. Good point. Yeah. Right. And that, that definitely fits into that um, upside down world thing. Yep. The inversions. Yes. Well, okay. So I was thinking I would jump right to the end of you know, not the very, very end, but um, this gal, she tells a couple of ghost stories. And I got to be honest, I didn't even listen to them. Um, and I just jumped to where, where she kind of explains some of the maybe reasons that these myths pop up historically. Um, I don't know. Do you guys want to listen to a ghost story, though? Or we go to the end of it. I'm kind of halfway inclined. I kind of like this girl. Amazing, <laughs> oh, amazing. Ask anyone. Her, her presentation's good. Yeah, she she is good. She is good. Um, here, let me go back just a hair more. Let's see. All right. 
haunted seas. I want to preface answering the question in the title of this video with setting the scene a little bit. We'll get to the reasons and explanations in the last section. So first, allow me to take you on a tour of some dark tales of famous ghost ships, starting with the ghost ship Palatine. Samuel Adams Drake once wrote in 1883, I would rather be wrecked anywhere than upon Block Island. Block Island, which lies off the coast of Rhode Island, was smack dab in the middle of a number of high traffic shipping lanes, meaning that it was an extremely easy wrecking ground for ships. In fact, people called wreckers often stayed on the island, luring ships into shore and then killing the crews, after which they would split the cargo and the money amongst themselves. In 1738, Okay, I'm pausing for a second because that's interesting, right? That's almost like our our like hijacking and, and kidnapping of the people on the plane scenario. These wreckers, right? These wreckers, like killing everybody and stealing their bounty, their booty, hmm. right? Yeah, I, I um, did take a tour of a lighthouse up in Michigan, and a lot of it was about the wreckers who were the rescue crew. They certainly didn't um, talk about that angle of it. It, they, it was all about mm -hmm. the heroism of rescuing people. And, and certainly, you know, they had lots of pictures and stuff of some and, and many stories of really harrowing um, situations that they would be in trying to rescue people on the frozen lake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that is interesting because I was thinking about wreckers in terms of like uh, that's what we call like a tow truck right yeah anyways you do rescue stuff right that's mike mm, i mean not really i've pulled a few people out of the snow with a toe strap before but that's about it gotcha <laughs> I, th I thought you were on some kind of rescue crew out in uh wherever oh, that, that was, was that was thing i think search and rescue so that search was more rescue, yeah. i mean that that was more on foot more or less it was in the national park so it was people that got hurt out on the trail and um yeah it was it was it was quite something but you didn't loot them no we didn't loot them dang <laughs> coulda could have gotten some nice gear you know good backpack good pair of boots <laughs> hiker what hiker <laughs> yeah I, d I didn't see nobody <laughs> it is, it's an interesting thing to consider because I think most of the people who do that stuff are probably more where you're at, where they're doing the sincere rescue stuff. But um, there could be a lot, a lot of opportunism, um, especially yeah. back when there wasn't as much surveillance and everything, too. Right. Mm. Well, you get people in a vulnerable position where they have nowhere to go and you do with them as you wish. You know, like that's how some of these people operate right yeah that's how that's how people do horrible shit and get away with it right the ghost ship is a useful thing like oh yeah we can just take everything i don't know man and then you just you spin it up as some ghost story true it's a possibility i want to i want to hear more of this girl she's good right yeah, she's pretty good. 
1908, the Palatine, which was really called the Countess Augusta, was voyaging from southwest Germany towards Philadelphia and Virginia, carrying 240 German immigrants. The ship was plagued with bad luck from the very beginning. First, they had contaminated water, causing many aboard to become gravely ill, and then a number of storms drove them off course northward, losing time after which Captain George Long died and first mate Andrew Brooke took over. As food on the ship became scarce, he started charging the ailing passengers for rations. At last, the coast of America drew near, but a raging snowstorm blinded Brooke, and the ship wrecked on Block Island. This is the part of the story where things get a little bit confusing. According to the surviving crew of the ship, Brooke took everyone ashore in a lifeboat, abandoning the passengers. The residents of Block Island pleaded with Brooke to go rescue the passengers, and eventually he agreed. After which, the islanders took the near-dead passengers into their homes, nursing them back to health, and personally rowing out to save what belongings they could still find. And then they buried the 20 dead. No one's sure if the wreck of the ship was burned or repaired and sent to Philadelphia. But the stories don't end there. According to a man named Joseph P. Hazard, fantastic name, it was the Block Islanders themselves who were actually wreckers, who lured the ship to its demise with fake lights, after which they murdered the passengers and then burned the ship. Some Block Islanders say that a woman named Mary Vanderlane died protecting her possessions, and that between Christmas and New Year, you can see her ghost on the burning ship out at sea and hear her screams. Or maybe it's only the wind. Who knows? For obvious reasons, the Block Islanders didn't appreciate this account of events. Regardless of what actually happened, though, it seems that the Palatine didn't stay dead. In 1811, a Block Islander named Dr. Aaron C. Wiley wrote, The people who have always lived here are so familiarized to the site that they never think of giving notice to those who do not happen to be present, or even of mentioning it afterwards. The light looks like a blaze of fire six or seven miles from the northern part of Block Island. Sometimes it's small, like the light from a distant window. Sometimes it's as big as a ship and wavers like a torch. It was large and gently lambent, very bright, broad at the bottom, and terminating acutely upward. I saw it again on the evening of December the 20th. It was then small, and I supposed it to be a light on board some vessel, but I was soon undeceived. It moved along, apparently parallel to the shore, for about two miles, in the time that I was riding one at a moderate pace. Some said that this ghostly light on the sea was God sending the Palatine back to punish the wreckers responsible for her passengers' deaths, but... Others who lived on Block Island had a different explanation. On the ship were two passengers, simply named Short Kate and Long Kate, who survived the wreck and settled on Block Island. According to Block Island historians, one of them had strange beliefs and behaviors and was casting spells to bring the ghost ship Palatine back from the grave. The Palatine isn't the only ghost ship believed to have been an omen or a punishment. In fact, the most famous one you may have actually heard of. Yes, the Flying Dutchman wasn't just a ship in Spongebob or Pirates of the Caribbean. It was, allegedly, a real ship. The first written mention of it cropped up in 1790 in John MacDonald's Travels in Various Parts of Europe, Asia, and Africa during a series of 30 years and upwards. <laughs> God, those 1700s book titles 
never understand brevity, do they? John wrote, The weather was so stormy that the sailors said they saw the Flying Dutchman. But after the book was published, dozens and dozens of sailors began writing down that they too had seen the ghost ship. In actuality, the legend of the Flying Dutchman had been floating around the Seven Seas for years before this, in particular, around the Cape of Good Hope. Okay. They say she is a uh, ghostly scholar. Scholar. Apologies to the listener. Apparently there was a baby crying. She must be in an apartment or something. Or, or even a cat. Maybe. It was, she. It, it had a little caption. It said, uh, mysterious baby crying, dot, dot, dot. It kind of threw her through a loop there. Like she wasn't used to hearing babies. So I don't know what that's about. It's a screaming <laughs> banshee. Uh, could be. <laughs> She's telling ghost stories, man. Maybe it's just part of it. <laughs> I'm the ghostly scholar. They say she is a ghostly schooner immersed in foggy, rough waters that she travels fast no matter the weather. But of course, most of the sightings occurred during a storm. The Flying Dutchman is widely considered to be a bad omen, a sign of death to come. The most famous sighting happened in 1881 when the English naval ship, the HMS Bacant, recorded a sighting. The man who later became King George V, serving as a midshipman, spotted the Flying Dutchman with Prince Albert Victor at 4 a.m. off the coast of Australia. They wrote, a strange red light as of a phantom ship all aglow in the midst of which light the mast spars and sails of a brig 200 yards distant stood out in strong relief as she came up on the port bow the officer of the watch from the bridge clearly saw her as did the quarter deck midshipman who was sent forward at once to the forecastle but on arriving there was no vestige nor any sign whatever of any material ship was to be seen either near or right away to the horizon the night being clear and the sea calm another crewmate who had actually seen the ship first then fell to his death off of the topmast in another incident in 1835 another british ship nearly collided with the flying dutchman which was sailing at top speed towards them only to disappear into thin air before impact. This seems to be a trend with the Flying Dutchman because in 1939, a group of people in Cape Town claimed that they saw her sailing towards shore before vanishing suddenly. But how did the Flying Dutchman become a ghost ship in the first place? Well, apparently she was, in life, a part of the Dutch East India Company's fleet. While sailing to Amsterdam along the route between the Netherlands and the East Indies, which traded in spices, tea, and fabrics, the Flying Dutchman encountered a terrible storm. Going by the most widely accepted lore, the Flying Dutchman's captain was a man named Captain Hendrik van der Decken, who was filled with not only gumption, but a lot of hubris. As the ship plowed through the storm, many on the crew begged him to turn the ship around. Some stories even say that the crew mutinied, but van der Decken wouldn't listen, notoriously declaring that the ship would make it around the Cape even if it had to sail until doomsday. Those words acted like a curse because, indeed, the ship would do just that. According to legend, the gods, or some say the devil himself, infuriated by his resistance, trapped the captain's soul on the ship. But some say the devil said to the captain that he could free himself from his watery prison by earning a woman's love. And so once every seven years, the Flying Dutchman's captain is free to walk ashore in search of his true love. Considering that no one has seen the Flying Dutchman since World War II, 
who knows? Maybe he finally got lucky. The problem with the Flying Dutchman story, though, is that we have no proof that the Captain Vanderdecken ever existed, but plenty of captains just like him absolutely did. The Cape of Good Hope was a notorious bad weather zone, but it was also a very valuable shortcut. Uncountable ships lost their lives in its waters due to their overzealous captains. Any one of them could be the Flying Dutchman. The Flying Dutchman has been seen all over the world. I have a thought. Shoot. What if these stories about potentially suicidal pilots trying to kill everybody along with themselves? I mean, somebody who's got 8,000 hours of flight experience who all of a sudden supposedly just decides to kill everybody on board their plane something totally out of character right we had the one just like a month ago we talked about it right of the of the guy standing up mid mid flight and trying to throw like certain levers that would have shut down the engines and it's like come on like is this like the flying dutchman the psychotic captain trying to just you know he's hellbent on you know he's basically you know suiciding the whole crew it's a theory. And mm. I just think it's interesting that Captain van der Decken, I mean, I believe that in Dutch that's of the deck, Captain of the deck. Hmm. I see a lot in names. I think that's part of their revelation. Yeah, and it's modern enough that it wouldn't traditionally be just like because it's your occupation kind of thing unless his lineage went back in sailing for many years. Hmm. I mean, they're not even saying that there's proof that he even existed. So right. it's so mythological. Mm. It could be anything. And also, I just thought it was interesting. I don't know if this was brought up. I, I might have tuned out. Um, they're talking about Block Island. Um, that is 14 miles or 23 kilometers east of Long Island's Mon Montauk Point. Montauk mm. Point. Hmm. That's interesting. I thought it that was is. a little interesting crossover. <clears throat> Don't know what it means. So, um, <laughs> what are they? I can't remember exactly what they're called, but there's these uh, lines that go through the earth that um, much of the east coast of America the is. Ley lines. Ley lines, yes. Thank you. Um, many of the big cities on the east coast of America are situated on those ley lines. Yes, um, they are. I don't know exactly what those are, but they're some sort of. There's supposedly some sort of energy conduit um, yes. where uh, the black magicians, shall we say, or something, um, they use that energy and concentrate it mm. through those ley lines. Yes. If you, sorry, are you finished, Pear? Yeah. If you um, look at some of the ley lines, and it's quite difficult to find legitimate maps. I mean, how do you know they're legitimate? Because they're, yeah, I've, I, I've looked, I looked at quite a few. Very little. <laughs> yeah. And also I've looked at a few maps too, and um, there's a lot of differentiating between them. So it's like, well, which one's real? But however, um, I remember looking into ley lines in the early nineties because I, oh, actually probably late eighties. And um, I was found them very interesting and where they intersect, where, where the, the lines like intersect from three different directions generally is quite a, it's, apparently quite very dark areas as in spiritually dark like Milton Keys in England is one that comes to mind um, and also if you search a lot of ley lines you'll find that churches 
foundations are built along, well, churches are built along ley lines, in lines. It's, an, it's astounding, actually, when you look at it, it's like, whoa, that is like, that can't be a coincidence. But then you'll find a lot of churches have been built on ancient temple sites as well. Like their foundational stones, etc., are actually temples. So, um, yeah, there's definitely some energy stuff going on, stuff that they won't, they're not going to come out and tell us and we have to try to try to dig and figure this stuff out ourselves while we get called crazy conspiracy theorists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we're doing a pretty good job tonight of being like semi like, I don't know, objective. Right. We're still speculating about stuff, but uh, if, if I can throw a wrench in that, I'll uh, yeah. I'll say I think there's something to. um ghosts and haunted places or haunted mm. things. Um, you know, you're talking about your table and how it's so real, how it has a soul. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think there's something to that. There's um, you, you brought up trains, haunted trains. Mm-hmm. There's a rail car. It's a box car. So it's a passenger car um, in my town that is apparently haunted. And my dog just like sat, and stared at it and got like skeezed out. Like she got scared oh, wow. looking at it. I didn't see anything, but my dog seemed like she saw something and it's kind of weird. And I asked my buddy who works with that rail yard about it. And he said, Oh yeah, there's, there's something. <laughs> wow. there, there is one car that uh, they say has some kind of haunting going on with it. Um, yeah, I think that that souls who are unresolved sometimes stick around to try to resolve their stuff. You know, ideally, um, after you die, you move on to what's next and what's better and and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. But if there's some kind of unresolved thing, um, like you died wrongfully or something, then that can be the kind of thing that would lead to ghosts. So I'm open to that. I've never seen exactly a ghost, but I think there's definitely spiritual elements at work and so i certainly don't discount it and i get chills when i think when like telling that story you know about my dog it's like oh (laughs) got a little chill they say that some souls don't even know they're dead and that's kind of why they loiter whether that's true or not but it is energy isn't it i mean it is energy we are energy we are electrical energy um that boxcar bear was that one that is actually in use still or is it sitting somewhere like a relic to look at it's it's a little bit of both. They do short tours with them. Right, okay. Like a historical uh, sort of Exactly. Kind of yeah. Yep. Hmm. Interesting. It's it's sort of a collector's item, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I you know, I actually just decided to pull up um because I've read this before, but this is actually an article about the boat that my table was made out of. And if I'm not mistaken, nobody died. I believe everybody basically, you know, made it to shore. It was not in like a very isolated place. Um, They had like boats that came out. They tried. If I remember right, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it was an interesting read. Right. I was kind of like glad to know nobody died. Right. Like to me, there's like maybe two types of soul that can exist within an object. Right soul of like something hand built by people out of what was living tissue. You know, I think there's something special about wood in particular. Absolutely. And um, 
yeah so there's that but then there's also like that potential where if something just tragically horrible happens that maybe that imparts sort of a negative thing on whatever object it's 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 clinging to right right yeah, well, you've, you've only got to look at what they're doing to us um wood and classical organic materials are you know, i mean it's all based on the dollar isn't it the love of money is the root of all evil um so they're replacing wood and organic things with plastics and things that screw up with electricity, like with friction, you know. I mean, how many times do you walk along in a pair of, I don't know, plastic shoes or whatever, and then you go and touch someone and they go, ouch, you know, you just gave me a shock. And also our clothes are made out of nylons and synthetics, and uh, they are really, they're screwing with our electrical system. I'm, I'm actually yeah. making a point of trying to never wear synthetics. Occasionally I'll have something old that I'll put on, but I'm trying to only, you know, buy hemp and linen and cotton, mm-hmm. um, because that is ideally what is wool, nurt- wool. nurturing for us. Yeah, yeah, wool as well, as long as it's not processed mm. too much, yeah. um, preferably unbleached stuff. So, yeah, I believe that there is, I mean, we are, you know, the body electric. I haven't re- read that book yet. I intend to sometime. Um, but we are electrical systems. So, obviously, we're going to be prone to having that system upset by things like synthetics, plastics, mm-hmm. etc. Well, I'm inclined to sort of play the last bit. Uh, and that's kind of going to be all I have about ghost ships other than whatever closing thoughts we have. But this girl does. I like the way she kind of wraps everything together and gives us a little bit of concrete, like how how maybe uh, people's eyes can be deceived. Right. But. It's still the mystery remains alive throughout this. Hi. In December 1950, an old man named Marshine McDonough spoke to the United Press ominously saying, the bay is full of ghosts, ships of the dead, lost ships come back. I remember the other night, a little boy from the cottages down yonder ran to me in terror and said he saw a white ship moving out of the water strange music coming from it. We all hoped he was just trying to give us a start, but the next night, Patty O'Loughlin, the fiddler, saw the same thing. And believe you me, it sobered him. I don't like it when those ships that should be at rest put into port. It means trouble for the world's sea lanes. They are putting in again, there's no doubt about that. What's going to happen, I don't know. But something bad is brewing. I suppose if we're getting really technical, we have to ask the question, if ghost ships are real, then... How, if they don't have a soul, in order to become a ghost? We hear sometimes about ghost trains, even ghost cars, but beyond that, the world of ghostly inanimate objects is quite slim. Is it restricted then to vessels? In 1863, a shipbuilder named Samuel Guppy had some interesting thoughts on this quandary. It appears very clear that something comes out of the human hand, and that something affects the piece of living wood as the sensitive plant and of dead wood as a table. He suggests that the act of building and creation itself lends human life to the objects we create, therefore, in a way, giving them a soul. 
This train of thought may be a big part of why so many Victorian ghost legends involve haunted objects. Candlesticks, utensils, instruments, and chairs being thrown through the air. In fact, many spiritualist claims of paranormal phenomena often involved these objects or the building itself, such as the rapping sounds used to communicate with the dead, or moving tables, or slamming doors and windows. The fetishism of the commodity and its secret describes the form of wood is altered if a table is made out of it. Nevertheless, the table continues to be wood, an ordinary, sensuous thing. But as soon as it emerges as a commodity, it changes into a thing which transcends sensuousness. It not only stands with its feet on the ground, but in relation to all other commodities, it stands on its head and evolves out of its wooden brain grotesque ideas, far more wonderful than if it were to begin dancing of its own free will. Even so, when haunted objects exist within a house, we usually don't think of the object as haunted. We attribute hauntedness to the house itself, because the object is not the vessel for the human soul. The home is. The homes we create become the vessels of our souls so long as we live there, and therefore can be used by us even after death. And so, as ships become our homes at sea, it's no wonder that they continue to do so, taking on a ghostly spirit, long after the ship has wrecked or its passengers are gone. A factor in why we're so attached to the idea of these old and decrepit formerly populated places is a concept called angst lust, which causes us to be simultaneously repulsed by and drawn to places that are no longer inhabited by the people that built them, nor anyone after ghost towns, abandoned buildings, the ruins of ancient places, and of course, shipwrecks. All of these things have now built an industry upon people who go explore them and show us the crumbling remains of what used to be a home or a bustling place full of life, a place where people fulfilled their hopes and dreams or lost them. They remind us how fickle and temporal the things and lives we build are. Wrecks and haunted ships for us are an even more stark and isolating source of that angst lust, because when those people died, they were often far, far from home in search of something, returning to something, just trying to survive or being taken against their will. There is a deep significance here, in particular, for the enslaved people being trafficked from Africa on the Middle Passage, thousands of whom never saw land again and were committed for eternity to the sea. Over the years since the fall of the transatlantic slave trade, many ships in those same waters have reported seeing the specters of former slave ships. In fact, the legacy of slavery has had an immense impact on the idea of sea hauntings at large, having produced a mythos of ghost slave ships being driven by the ghosts of the enslaved people it once imprisoned. Many of these sightings come from a place of guilt in slavery's wake, with many white seamen, especially those who formerly sailed on slave ships, being haunted by them still. It makes sense when you think about it, as sailor lore often believed that a ship and its crew were one. A ship you once sailed never truly leaves you, for better or for worse. In the book Middle Passage by Charles Johnson, the narrator observes just before the ship sinks, It was impossible to tell where the ship ended and sailor began, or, for that matter, to clearly distinguish what was ship, what sailor, and what sea. For in this chaosmus of royally water and fire, formless mist and men flying everywhere, the sea and all within it seemed a churning field that threw out forms indistinctly. All this can... Pausing there. I found that quote incredibly interesting when you think about it within the context of having this myth of the 
Philadelphia experiment, right? The part where it says it became, it became, where, where, where is it? It was impossible to tell where ship ended and sailor began, or for that matter, to clearly distinguish what was ship and what sailor and what sea. For in this cos- chaosmos, cosmos, I guess, of royally water and fire, formless mist and men flying everywhere. This is this is the legend of the Philadelphia Project, right? But from a book way, way older, I presume. It's kind of interesting. History hmm. always repeats, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it suggested to me the old thing about um, the captain is so bonded to his ship that he will go mm-hmm. down with his ship rather than mm-hmm. save his own life. Uh, yeah, something that she said about how it's the captains and not the uh, slaves that were being transported. I would think the slaves, their souls would be back at home wherever their families were and stuff. And mm. the crew, their souls could be more tied up with the ship, right? Because mm. they went down and in a way, like their souls were not at rest because they were doing something wrong. If that's what, if this, if that's how that goes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and can you imagine the immense amount of energy? If, if this is true, that energy goes into inanimate objects or organic objects like wood, etc. Can you imagine the immense amount of energy that would be on something like a slave ship? Mm. Like there would be the whole myriad of emotions and feelings and, what have you, coming out of many bodies in a, in a united fashion, like the, the slaves would all feel the same oppression and the same desperation and probably sadness. Yeah. And they, they might be cursing that captain mm. yeah. as they went possible. down. Mm. And that, that's the, yeah, this is all energy. So, I mean, that is what prayer is. You are redirecting energy. Um, that's what wishcraft is. You're redirecting energy. So it's really not that out there to no really... i've i've known some people from ghana and such and they are pretty in touch with witchcraft over there it's a little weird it's very culturally different yeah my mum had a well she's got a friend who came from south africa and she was immigrating to australia and that would have been about maybe 15 20 years ago and she just had to get out of south africa because oh, she's a white lady and um she yeah, it was just getting really bad, like carjackings and things like that. She just wanted to leave and get her family out as well. And before she left, she had a voodoo ritual done on her, which was quite freaky to hear about. Um, but she was also told a few things by this, what do they call them? The woman, witch woman, what are they called? Oh, anyway, mm. you know, the witch woman, <laughs> the one who was doing the ritual. Um yeah, she told her quite a few things, which ended up becoming quite clearly true when she got to Australia. And one of them was that she would she described perfectly this lady that this person was going to meet, and it turned out to be my mum, and um, all sorts of other things, which I, I'd have to refresh my memory. But it was very, very interesting. This, so yeah, there's definitely something in there for sure. The energy. So maybe ghost ships are not just a psyop. Well, it's a very old tale, man. Yeah. Like I, like I kind of have been, I guess, trying, you know, it's like, again, like there's always truth somewhere to the myth. 
sometimes it's a very real event, a really practical explanation that got magnified out of proportion. But, you know, these myths that seem to repeat are kind of interesting. You know, it does make you wonder. Yeah. In every myth, there's a grain of truth. Yeah. For sure. Well, it has to be. Otherwise, no one would believe it. <laughs> yeah, true. True. All right. Let's close this out. And, or for that matter, to clearly distinguish what was ship, what sailor, and what sea. For in this chaos mist of royally water and fire, formless mist and men flying everywhere, the sea and all within it seemed a churning field that threw out forms indistinctly. All this can explain why so many people at sea would easily have been in a headspace to mistake certain sea phenomena for ghosts while out on the ocean. But over the thousands of years people have been going to sea, they've been seeing spooky phenomena on the water. And there's no way that all of them were just lying about what they saw. Were they? While it may seem strange, there's actually a number of scientific reasons why people may have seen what they saw while at sea. The first one that would easily explain a number of ghost ship sightings is an optical illusion called the Fata Morgana. Fata Morgana is actually a mirage that can be seen either on land or sea. It's named after a friend of the channel Morgan Le Fay from Arthurian Legend because according to the stories, she would use those illusions to lure sailors into her schemes. Fata Morgana gives the illusion of things floating above land or water, as if literally flying, and only comes about when very specific weather conditions occur. Basically, a layer of cold air near the ground or water is topped with a layer of warm air above it, and then light rays going through the two layers are bent in interesting ways, causing the illusion of empty space in the cold layer. This illusion has caused people to not only see flying ghost ships, but also mountains and cities at sea. There's actually a theory that a Fata Morgana caused the iceberg that sank the Titanic to appear invisible, resulting in the ship being unable to see it in time. But who knows? Other scientific explanations are, well, the same reasons a lot of people see ghosts on land. Sometimes it's a trick of the sunlight or a weather anomaly. Sometimes they're literally just seeing another ship in the fog. Sometimes they're super drunk, a thing that sailors are well known for being, and sometimes they're sick from eating spoiled or contaminated food. But sometimes there really is no explanation, and all we're left with is endless questions that will never have answers. Because, well... The sea really does never give up her secrets. I think in general, people at sea are in the perfect headspace to see a ghost ship. They're far from home, in an environment that is inherently hostile to human life. Many people who went to sea didn't want to be there. They may have been lonely or homesick or literally sick, and many, many, many of them died there in horrible, tragic ways. We're all fascinated by shipwrecks. It's the reason we're so obsessed with the Titanic, or why the Flying Dutchman was such a key star in Pirates of the Caribbean, or why so much of our media involves a broken ship filled with forgotten treasures at the bottom of the sea. It's the cold, lonely romance of it all. The sea is as bloodthirsty as she is fierce, and she can take as much as she gives. And honestly, when you're stuck on a ship for weeks or months with not much to do, it's no wonder a few people may have decided to spin a spooky yarn or two about seeing a ghost ship. Other stories were built into something unbelievable over the years by writers who weren't even there, who were looking to cash in on an old myth. And still others really did see something out there. Maybe you will too. 
if you just keep your eyes on the horizon. Thank you for learning with me about some ghostly ships of yore. Let me know in the comments if you've got a favorite haunted ocean legend. Bonus points if it's one from your hometown or where you live. I'll see you at the end of the month for some more Halloween fun, this time a lot bloodier. But until then, wash thy hands, wear thy mask, or else meet me at five at Davy Jones. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she had to go there. She had to go there. (laughs) I liked her. I liked her until she had to go and say that. She really screwed that up, didn't she? Dumb bitch. Why'd you gotta go and do that? You were cool until about two seconds ago. I mean, it was in the debunking phase where um, most of the witnesses, I mean, many of them were not on on sea, they were on land, Mm -hmm. and um, it would have been at night, so no sunlight. So, so, I mean, True. there could have been moonlight, but and some of the phenomenon with like the um, mist above the water and stuff that seems legit. But um, I can see how it would happen. But also some of the things that she's citing are kind of uh, stretching it a little Japanese bit. Sub- yeah, it kind of reminds me of, you know, when you're on the road and it's a really hot day and you look ahead and you see that mirage sort of thing. I mean, it's quite possible that there are anomalies that yeah. are created with distance and, and light bends and all that sort of thing. That was an interesting 33-minute video, that one, wasn't it? Yeah, well, um, <laughs> she, I, I did I did cut through about 10 minutes of it. when She told more ghost stories, um, which I might go back and listen to, even though she's a dumb bitch telling me to wear my mask. But this whole conversation reminded me of this scene from Jaws. I mean, come on. Like, this is it. You guys know about the USS Indianapolis, which just so happens to be where I am? No, (laughs) sir, I do not. You don't? You don't? Okay, well, you're about to be educated. Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side, Chief. It was coming back from the island of Tinian to Lady, just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. 1,100 men went into the water. Vessel went down in 12 minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, 13-footer, you know? You know that when you're in the water, Chief? You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. What we didn't know was our bomb mission had been so secret. No distress signal had been sent. They didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it's kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo. And the idea was, shark comes the nearest man, that man, he starts pounding and hollering and screaming. Sometimes the shark go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then, oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, despite all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in, they 
Rip you to pieces. You know, by the end of that first dawn, lost a hundred men. I don't know how many sharks, maybe a thousand. I don't know how many men, the average six an hour. On Thursday morning, Chief, I bumped into a friend of mine, Herbie Robinson from Cleveland. Baseball player, Bosom's mate. I thought he was asleep. Reached over to wake him up. Bobbed up and down in the water. It was like a kind of top. Upended. Well, he'd been bitten in half below the waist. Noon the fifth day, Mr. Hooper, Lockheed Ventura saw us. He swung in low and he saw us too. The young pilot, a lot younger than Mr. Hooper anyway, he saw us and he come in low. And three hours later, a big fat PBY comes down and starts to pick us up. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So 1,100 men went in the war. 316 men come out, the sharks took the rest, June the 29th, 1945. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. Yeah, right, I thought I recognised that guy. He was the same guy in um, Jaws, wasn't he? Yeah. Or was that... That yeah. was Jaws. That was Jaws. Okay, right. Sorry. Yeah. It's been too long since I've seen it. You know, I, I'm kind of bummed because uh, I thought that's when he sung Spanish Ladies. You guys know that song? It's a good one. No, I don't think so. Yeah, I no, think me he... either. Oh, they cut I might it off. recognize it if I heard it, but nope. Hold on a second. <laughs> I'd, I'd oh, you know what? Know. It's, it's a different scene, but go ahead, Stella. Uh, oh, I was just going to say, the guy said, you know, the sharks have lifeless eyes, like dolls with black eyes. And I'm thinking, yeah. what sort of a childhood did this man have with dolls with black eyes? That sounds creepy. Well, no, he, yeah, he's playing this character, but that story is 100% true about the USS Indianapolis mm -hmm. delivering the bomb to Hiroshima and going down from a Japanese torpedo after the fact. Uh, and, and all those men getting eaten by sharks. And anyways, I want to play this song because it's just it's classic. This is a, what they call a sailor shanty. OK, I actually did an episode way back maybe a year ago. And I called it um, Pirates and Sailors. Uh, was it Seamen and Smugglers? No, 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 not Seamen, even though that's a funny word. Um, <laughs> fishermen and Smugglers. Yeah. Pirates, Sailors, Fishermen and Smugglers. And I actually did my own version of Spanish ladies on that episode. Uh, so I recommend going back and checking that out because you don't get to hear me sing too often. But here you go. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu you ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for the sail back to Boston. And so never more shall we see you again. <laughs> I just love that shit. I love it. That song can go on. There's so many verses. It's what they would do to entertain themselves. There'd be 
just dozens and dozens of, you know, different versions with different verses. And it's, it's such a fascinating culture. They're incredibly superstitious. And the, the relationship with the sea is a very interesting one. Like the life of a sailor of some kind, you know, they are probably the most superstitious people out there on average. I, I do love me some shanty tunes. I love the harmonies that they put in and there's some, there's some great narratives in there. My grandfather was in world war two in the Navy and he was on some kind of mission toward Japan that um, apparently it was going to be like a suicide mission. And uh, he basically got saved by the end of the war slash a bomb <laughs> so there's an interesting and ironic um, little factor in in my coming to be, you know, because if if he hadn't, if that A-bomb, which I am totally against, um, hadn't been deployed, maybe he would have actually done the suicide mission, whatever that was. And I don't know much about it. Maybe they had another payload. I don't know. Who knows? That is lost to history there. Ando's reminding me, I almost forgot, but yeah, there is a bit of a soundtrack in Hey Duke 2029, the audiobook. Uh, because there are songs quoted in that book, and I figured, fuck it, if I'm gonna read this audiobook, I'm not gonna like read the lyrics, I'm gonna sing the damn lyrics. Fuck nice, <laughs> nice, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah, I read of- your book, and now I think I might have to start listening to those <laughs> there you go there you go man yeah it's a whole different experience <laughs> most of the songs i knew yeah, so it was yeah. easy to like sing along in my own head <laughs> that was that was that was by design as you might imagine yeah. if uh if you're a big fan of sea shanties etc um i encourage you to look into some of the australian shanties because that's a mm. hell of a trip coming from england to australia it's like basically the antipode um, and yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of time to make up. And so I guess, you know, the verses went on and on and I guess over the, over the journeys, um, probably added to by different people and different situations. Uh, lots of, uh, war, war songs as well, which I'm not sure, I guess, I guess there'd be war songs in, in your culture as well, but, um, mm-hmm. definitely there's some excellent Australian war songs. So you'd probably enjoy them as well. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, like it almost troubles makes, in your old kit bag, stuff like that. Yeah. It almost brings it back to that idea of like energy and like prayer and like, you know, unity, unity, singing, singing in, in unison, mm-hmm. chanting in unison mm-hmm. has power, you know, spiritually comforting. Yeah. I mean, you would need any form of comfort you could possibly um, salvage when you're on a, a ship, probably very hungry. Um, and lonely. Yeah. Homesick as hell. God knows what's ahead of you. You I mean, can you, I can't even imagine what that would have been like, especially the first few ships that came out if they made it. Mm. Um, yeah. Imagine the, uh, the mystery that must've been in their heads. Like where, what are we going to find? Where are we going? How long is it going to take? They wouldn't have known any of that. Are we in the right direction? Hmm. I, I would love to play the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, but I bet you <laughs> I bet you we'd get a copyright strike. Um, 
you know, we're pushing it already with some of these clips, right? But it's, you know, like that song. Oh, we all know the song. A that little bit. song, man. I fucking love that song because if you really, really listen, if you really listen, it's such a, what would you even call it? Is it, is it a shanty? You could call it a shanty. It's, it's like a ballad. A, it's a ballad shanty. Yeah. It's a, it's a sailor song, you know? It's it's yeah. got its roots in the in the sea shanty, at the very least. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I love that shit. Old folk music, man. Old of all types, but yeah. You know, it's like same thing with what I. I mean, I hate to bring up a negative image of it, but like slaves on the cotton fields, you know, inventing gospel music, right? Yeah, and uh, working on the railroad, you know. I mean, they'd often sing songs to so that they and marching soldiers. They're singing songs to keep in rhythm with each other, keep in lockstep. Yep. Yeah, uh, rowing, you know, row those big boats that they used to row ships. I should say, right? Yeah, they used to row. You know, they'd be singing their beat. Uh, well, yep. the um, ship master, the, you know, with the whip, basically, would be probably heading the song, and they'd be singing along together to get the rhythm of the oars right. It's funny, um, camping this weekend, uh, I should be a little vague because the people I was camping with, they're all, uh, they're all anonymous, more or less. They have pseudonyms. Like I, I plugged them at the beginning. Right. But basically one of their ladies, one of their girls, uh, is, uh, in a, in a barbershop quartet. And so we started talking about just singing, right. Cause I was a choir kid and, uh, you know, I almost want to like join a church just to join the choir at the very least, you know, see if the rest of it soaks in. But choirs are kind of powerful. You know, I loved being in a choir, even though I quit after, you know, it does. Grade. It yeah. feels really good to sing in unison with people and yeah. feel that that same resonance around you that you're 100%. um that you're exuding from yourself as well. You know, it, it is, it is a pretty powerful thing. Yeah. And singing in harmony. So, I mean, it's so everything's working together. You've got to, you've got to get exactly the right frequency to make it meld into that beautiful, beautifulness. Otherwise it's all off. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I joked with her. Would, de would depend I, on what they're, what they're singing. Of course. I joked with her at the beginning. I was like, yeah, I kind of like brought up, I was like, yo, so I heard you're in a barbershop quartet. She's like, yeah. I'm like, that's pretty rad. I'm like, actually, what I well, I think I did say that's pretty rad. But then I was like, you know, to be honest with you though, like, I I usually fucking hate barbershop quartets, <laughs> like, like the annoying old men with white straw hats. It can know, get real. It can like, get like real cheesy shirts. and sterile for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm imagining the guys in literally in a barbershop wearing like the stripy shirts and like, yeah, just like <laughs> annoying as shit. Like, shut the like, fuck up. How pretentious can you be? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys uh, seen yeah. the uh, clip of the really large choir that did Africa by Toto? And they start mm -hmm. off and they're all doing the, you know, the hand rubbing and it sounds like the rain. It's really awesome. Have you seen that? Negative. No. Oh, oh, okay. I'll have to find it and I'll send you a link sometime, but that's mm. really cool. Do you want me to find it now? And sure. uh, you'd get a copyright strike, sure. so maybe not a good uh, idea. Would we? Yeah. Yeah, Toto, definitely. Yeah, for 
Too bad. Sadly. Well, you know, um, one of my favorite albums is Paul Simon's Graceland, where he got mm-hmm. a bunch, he got this African group called um, Ladysmith Black Mombazo. Yeah. They were as awesome. their, as the backup for that. And I actually saw Ladysmith Black Mombazo um, when I was a kid, and I was kind of too young to appreciate it. I did too. But you saw them? Yeah, they came to Australia. Nice. I'm, I'm sure it was them. Yeah, I'm going to check that, but I'm sure it was them, but I was pretty young. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my parents took me when I was probably like 10 years old um, just because they were in our area. Um, no Paul Simon, but they did some of those songs. And I mean, it's it was pretty cool. Um, where were we going with that? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, we're like kind of we're like free at this point. We're just free balling it. I was just talking about the, the unity of choirs, etc. Choir and whatnot. Yeah. Music. The power of music, man. Uh, yeah. And yeah. collective, collective, I don't know, spirit, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the thing about Lady Smith Black Mombazo is that, that it's a big group of people all singing together, you know? Mm. And that definitely adds to the spirit of that particular album, the Paul Simon one. Yeah, well, I mean, how many times has somebody, well, I'm sure everybody's experienced it, where they they hear something incredible that just somehow taps into something in, within them and you get you literally get goosebumps. It affects you physically. Your mm-hmm. hairs stand mm-hmm. up on end. It doesn't happen to me very often, but I know when it does, it's like take note of this, you know, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, music is such a, it's a universal language. It, it unites. You don't have to speak any language to unite in music it's awesome i love that and story man that's so taking it back like story is a powerful thing music's a powerful thing it's a it's a means of achieving a common resonance and we do have to be careful what stories we buy into and and why and when like you know what i'm saying like i almost think they might take these cliche you know myths that crop up and and like i i've kind of already said but kind of weaponize them against against us because they're compelling stories the mystery we love the mystery so who the fuck knows you know i don't know what the fuck happened to mh370 i don't know what the fuck happened to you know the uss uh whatever it was you know project fucking philadelphia but these stories are so compelling. I don't know. I like for me, like at this point, it's just like for the entertainment, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not trying to solve any mysteries. I'm just, Mm. I am interested in the why of them though. You know, like why, especially these more recent ones. It is fun to speculate. And it also, it's another uniting thing, isn't it? Because we were all putting our minds together. We're on a similar sort of wavelength, Mm -hmm. literally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so yeah, it's unity kind of can be too. beautiful or it can be weaponized, you know? That's, yeah. 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 I mean, look at what they've been saying for the last t- three years. We're all in this together. It's like, no, we're not. You're not we're, in this together with us. There's one of those us magic and them. spells. <laughs> wear, wear your mask, you know, mask up, mask up. Take mm-hmm. your damn shot. We're yeah, all doing but, this um, together. How many people have said look i wouldn't have worn a mask but i just you know did it to get along sort of thing it's like yeah because yeah. you felt secure in that unity so mm-hmm. people don't like to be uncomfortable <laughs> mm-hmm. takes i don't know yeah certain type of person to say fuck it no 
I think we're all there. We're all those people, which is good. I don't know. It's uh, yeah. Oh, I'm a hundred percent. Fuck it all away. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I believe it was 1998. Just looking up the um, archives of Lady Smith Black Mombazo, Mombazo, Mombazo. Uh, looks like they toured 1998. Yeah, they've been touring for a long time. There's 50 pages, 51 pages of archives. 1987 was wow. the Paul Simon uh, where they basically got launched, I suppose. Yeah, I think it was before 98 that I saw them, but it would have been in the 90s. Yeah. Would have been the 90s for me too, pretty early or late 80s perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, they were great. And that's another reason I've always wanted to, the only, one of the very few places that I wanted to visit in the world after, because I've sort of, I'm kind of not really into the traveling thing, especially now. Um, but one of the places I really wanted to go was the like the place that got wiped out by Katrina so all the churches you know the happy clappy churches where they're all black people I know it's a real stereotypical thing but you know like the the background where Aretha Franklin New, came from New Orleans yeah yeah I mean I would love I, I've said this before I think but I would love to do one of those tours just go from mm. church to church to church and just listen to those choirs would be so mm. awesome the, yeah. the energy I, is just that totally. could be really cool I've been to yeah. a black church and it was something else man yeah <laughs> Those like Baptist churches where they're just, yeah, yeah, yeah. all they were speaking <laughs> all tongues about and everything. <laughs> really, really, that might have a been little bit, a little bit. It wasn't encouraged, but yeah. it happened during the service. I want to say Gift that the would, Holy Spirit. I would, I would say I, I think that's more Pentecostal than Baptist, but I'm not totally a hundred percent. Yeah, I have no idea what denomination this was. Also, also, it was a big I, one though. It was a big church. I don't know. people. I don't fucking know about speaking in tongues personally. Uh, it's in the Bible. Yeah. Is it? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Know. If I don't, you can I don't, believe I, that that's all correct. It, well, I don't know much. I just don't know much, but it's kind of like, whoa. I don't know. How, it looks a little weird to me, a little demonic potentially, but. Yeah, but I that's, that's, I because don't know. A, that's because everything holy has a demonic counter, mm. counter thing, mm. inversion. Um, because they can't create things, they can only invert them, really. God is the creator. So I've done something with um, making music where I'll just sing along and I don't have lyrics. And if I don't come up with lyrics, then they don't come. And sometimes I just sing literal gibberish, like whatever, whatever I'm inspired to. And it doesn't have to be words. So some of my stuff has been gibberish, literally. Awesome. <laughs> and I don't... I wouldn't say I was speaking in tongues or anything. It's just uh, getting well, more into the vibe of the music rather than um, rather than concentrating on what the words are. Not yep. not totally dissimilar though, right? Right. Yeah. Like, makes makes me think of that band Seeger. Uh, yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. I, That's kind of where I got it. Really, yeah. <laughs> they right. they were a yeah, big yeah, influence yeah. on me. <laughs> right. That's cool that you know them. Yeah, they're good. Yeah, I, like I know them. them. I I would study to them. I've seen them a couple times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, in jazz, you call it scat. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that. That. Yep. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's good fun doing that. that. That's da, awesome. Da, oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, baby. Yeah, that's really awesome to bear. I love hearing that. That it's just like leaving yourself completely open to just inspiration. I mean, so many people don't really stop and just let themselves be led. 
if mm. I mean it, it probably takes mm. practice to be really truly led, but that's awesome. I love that. Just letting letting the energy take you, or giving yourself to it. I suppose. Nice. You know, it's I I have one semi unrelated clip, but what Stella just said is actually a pretty good segue. You know, I'm like very impressed with these people that in like public settings sort of stand up and like shout the truth to a room that doesn't want to hear it. I've been seeing these videos, you know, for the last few years now, right? With, I don't know, public uh, school, like board meetings or, you know, town councils, city councils, all that, all that stuff. Um, this is interesting because this is a, it's a clip of somebody at, oh, what, what's the name of the company? It's fucking um, Warren Buffett's like main business, I think. I forget what it's called, but I'll just play the video. This guy gets arrested for basically bringing up um, a pretty like reasonable grievance. He was a he was a scheduled speaker, and he was uh, addressing the need for like basically decentralizing the corporate structure, saying it's not right for there to be somebody who's both the CEO and I think it was the president or the chairman or whatever. Um, anywho, that's, that's my sad attempt at an intro, but here you go. Here's a question for you. Can you be arrested for speech in this country? Well, the short answer is yes. An interesting story unfolded earlier this month at Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. One of the scheduled speakers, Peter Flaherty from the National Legal and Policy Center, challenged the multinational conglomerate to separate the position of CEO and chairman, based largely on the fact that the current CEO and chairman, Warren Buffett, gave heavily to Bill Gates' philanthropic organization, which pushes things like gender theory. Well, his comments landed him in handcuffs. Here's some of what he said during that meeting. If we had an independent chair, the company would be less identified with Mr. Buffett's political activities. He's donated tens of billions to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. As Bill Gates explained, when the company was still together, although the company bears our names, Basically, half our resources have come from Warren Buffett. If woke culture is the disease, then philanthropy is the virus. The Gates Foundation bankrolls the teaching of critical race theory around the country, including that math is inherently racist. The Gates Foundation offers a gender identity toolbox, which asserts that gender is a result of socially and culturally constructed ideas. This is a lie. Gender is not a cultural construct. It is a genetic and biological fact. We know how much Bill Gates cares about children. He met and traveled with Jeffrey Epstein many times Foundation may be the largest single donor to the dark money machine known as Arabella and the Society. We don't get funders and causes like defunder police or aging American cities in the middle. Money goes also to groups conducting threats. Yeah, yeah, they didn't like that. They didn't like that one. Very sensitive. Ooh, a couple baby. people started cheering right at the beginning. A couple people started cheering at the Epstein thing. 
and people started booing about like Bill Gates, basically. Yeah. It's weird, man. This whole thing is weird. So like, yeah. So this is at the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder, um, like meeting. When was and he's, this? And he's a shareholder. Uh, when was this? Five months ago, this video. Right. Up. Okay. Yeah. Oh, what was posted five months ago. Yep. Yeah. And he's saying this to Warren Buffett's face, if I'm not mistaken. You know, Warren Buffett's the main shareholder of Berkshire Hathaway, which I don't know what they do. My guess is like they're an investment firm or some shit, but I don't know. Yeah, that's that's pretty much, that's what, pretty much what he does, right? Yeah. Was um, Warren Buffett's name apparently on the Lolita list? What list? Yeah. The Lolita Express, the plane that goes to Little St. James Island. Oh, oh, I Epstein don't. Island. I'm not I don't sure. remember if he was or not. Yeah. I seem to remember his name got mixed up there somewhere, but you know, a lot of names did. Obviously, Again, he's we'll never know. giving to people who are definitely associated with that and um, rubbing elbows with them. Yeah. So apparently, Berkshire Hathaway Inc. is an American multinational conglomerate holding company its main <laughs> whatever that it, is yeah its main business and source of capital is insurance uh, yeah right bank from is which, insurance People from which it world. invests the float or the retained premiums in a broad portfolio of subsidiaries uh equity positions and other securities so yeah, yeah other I mean, words, they spend it all and keep it for themselves yeah. and all that they launder the shit out of it <laughs> Probably. print more <laughs> hope they have enough yeah print more <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have a claim we'll print some yeah sorry yours is gone but yeah we can print some anytime <laughs> so yeah warren buffett's one of the founders probably the number one yeah key people warren buffett um yeah so anyways he's saying this to warren buffett's fucking face being like you know you're supporting bill gates right and he does all this creepy ass shit. And then this video, he's getting arrested. You heard the booze and you also heard that his microphone ended up getting cut off, but it got even worse, folks. An Omaha police officer grabbed him by the arm and forced him out of the venue, informing Flaherty that he was under arrest. So what was he arrested for, you ask? Well, the official report says trespassing, even though Flaherty was a scheduled speaker. The charges were eventually dropped, but Peter Flaherty, the man who you just saw in that video, he joins me now to discuss the situation. Peter, thanks for being here. Not trying to be funny, but glad you're out of handcuffs, my friend. All right, well, me too. Good to see you, Terrence. All right, so we kind of heard your speech there. Give us the background here. Give us some perspective before we dig a little deeper into what happened here. Sure. Um, we have something called the Corporate Integrity Project, and the heart of that project is shareholder activism. This year, we have proposals before 26 companies. We address a number of issues, including an independent chairman. There are companies like Berkshire Hathaway and Coca-Cola and Bank of America where the chairman and the CEO are the same person. And we argue that this creates uh, a, a concentration of power in one person that's unhealthy for the corporation. Now, you might find that a strange formulation when you're talking about Berkshire Hathaway because Warren Buffett is so closely identified with the company. They're almost the same thing in the minds of the public. But my argument is that it makes for an even more dangerous situation when you're getting good publicity 
uh, everything is great, but when you're getting negative publicity, uh, namely uh, Warren Buffett's close identification with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the, um, uh, the negative attention can rub mm -hmm. off on the company. It's called reputational risk. Uh, these independent chairman uh, resolutions are kind of good corporate governance 101. They're supported by both liberal and conservative shareholder activists. Uh, I guess at the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, I brought up something that was just too uncomfortable for Warren Buffett, and he resorted to, uh, to, to uh, having me arrested. You know what I really can't stand about Bill Gates? I mean, apart from millions of everything, is <laughs> his stupid smirk. He's always got that upside-down yeah. smirk. It's like, turn your frown upside down, mate. Well, yeah, he does just, I don't know, everything like about that, him. If anyone like excludes Lizard person, smirk. it's Bill Gates. Jesus, yeah, he's, he's just a sniveling little Ugh. miscreant. Ugh. <laughs> He's hateable to us too. <laughs> I don't know how Melinda ever did it. Hey, she she hit her limit eventually. Mm. <laughs> Apparently, artificially inseminated. I reckon being up the funds. Like Bill Gates has enough negativity associated with his name that might as well like she takes a bunch of it and safe holds it while he goes through his little um, reckoning. Fall, fall from grace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not a not a uh, terrible yeah, theory. Not a terrible theory. Either that or she's just jumping ship, man. Yeah, it could be. Who knows? No, that that, that's, that is a thing actually. Um, that people sometimes end up having to look like they're getting divorced to save, you know, the business venture or what have you. So it's, it's totally still viable. the it's Maybe. still the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation after all. So as is far it? As I know as far as I know. I think they was... They've changed the name of that. A couple times because i think it started out as something like the population the bill and melinda gates foundation for population control a philanthropist no foundation or something like that yeah <laughs> no way is that yeah I, I think i said it right the bill and melinda gates for population control check it out i'm looking it up oh okay Good it's day. uh i mean it's like your dad started planned parenthood right Yes, eugen eugenics was transformed yep. into philanthropy. Eugenics was, was a more... big part of where he comes from. Well, yep. this same, um... with, same with Greta Thunberg's grandfather. Uh huh. Bill and Melinda Gates Institute for Population and Reproductive Health. <laughs> the name it says here, uh, AP News. Okay. Yeah, it was. It wasn't named the Institute for Population Control. I don't know. That kind of makes me think it was. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Is that there's, Associated Press? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it might be fairly wiped, but there's a video kicking around where they're talking about the name change. No kidding. It's no from kidding. a while back. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> Associated Press is basically the the spike or the the snake head of the um news, the mainstream news. So whatever. Yeah, that all funnels down into the other tentacles of the mainstream news from Associated Press, from what I understand. It is it is currently on their website still the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So there's Good that. To know. Yeah. You know what else about Billy and uh, what's his name? <laughs> Melinda. Um, <laughs> if you go to, uh, I've, I think I've said this before too, but I'll just quickly run over it. If you go to Ancestry.com, 
you'll find anyone who can get into it, you'll find that um, uh, they were killed two or three times. <laughs> Apparently, supposedly murdered in India, I believe, in about 2011, 12, something like that. I can't quite remember the date. And then they were murdered again a couple of years later. <laughs> and then, Who's this? So, yeah. I, I missed. The Gateses? Bill and Melinda Gates. Really? I've got, I've got all the screenshots, yeah. I've there's... heard that there's death warrants out for them in India. Yeah. Specifically. Yes, because of all the killing. where they're not allowed. Yep. Because of experimenting yeah. on them like guinea pigs and killing yeah. people, killing babies. Yeah. So it's quite possible if we believe in cloning or whatever. Well, that's Who knows? Um, Osama bin Laden is one where how many times had he been killed? And now there's a new letter from him that uh, I think it might actually be his old original letter. That it's the old original letter. Oh, yeah. Resurfacing for some stupid reason. <laughs> you know, I got to go back. I was listening to No Agenda and I got distracted, but they seem to think that it was like a phony. Yeah. Well, and, and they, they've been doing their show for 15 years covering like everything and they got the receipts, bro. Like they go back to the year, but they weren't they weren't working in two thousand and one. Um, but even still, I like listening to those guys because they're both like old and they remember <laughs> they remember what what happened and what didn't. You know, I think yeah. they're honest, and that doesn't mean they always get everything right. It doesn't mean they're always right, and they they would be the first to admit it, no doubt. Yeah, who does? How can you get anything right these days? Right, it's no, right. it's hard to find facts, isn't it? But um, I think. I just feel like all these letters and things that are coming out and, you know, particularly now, everything's time. Anything that's on mainstream media is only there because they want us to see it. And this this, this is not the only letter. Yeah, Yeah, totally. This is not the only letter that's come out. There's been a couple more. I just can't think of them exactly. But I know there's other things in recent years um, that have come out, particularly in this the new millennium. And that's just CIA stuff. They're just releasing stuff they want us to see. It's just like all these redacted things. Like, yeah. Mm It's just they, they're way beyond that where anything can affect – anything of this information can affect them. Like they're way past all that. So it's quite safe to let all this stuff out. Um, I don't what? think anyone – I think anyone who uncovers anything of any value is shut down very quickly and generally, yeah, they killed, they killed himself sort of scenario. That's why I'm wondering about this dude like Ashton, whatever his name was, who's pushing the MH seventy MH three seventy stuff. Okay. Um, and and you know, because like that's why I brought the story about the the Philadelphia project, because it was really the whole narrative, the whole m- m- myth, was driven by just a couple of characters, right? Like one author and one supposed witness and some mystery surrounding the both of them and that was enough you know to like kick the story off and the guy got suicided the author got suicided like so it is it makes you wonder like why hmm yeah like these these narratives are are seem very much manipulated into place on purpose just feels that way Morris was the name of that guy I tend to think there must have been something there if he got suicided. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he was just depressed. They claim that his wife was leaving him and that his last two books were failures. Yeah, he was writing UFO literature, right? So like niche, mm. niche community stuff back in the day. You know, early he was, days. He was grasping at straws. Yeah, it, but you know, it makes you wonder if he wasn't just like a plant. 
you know, sowing the seeds of that entire narrative, right? Mm-hmm. The UFO narrative, like it's like Wilson Wills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and this this guy Ashton, whatever. I you know, I, I see them as very skilled storytellers because I I that's kind of what I want to be, but I'm trying to be on the good side of things, right? <laughs> you know, like. But they're very talented storytellers, and and that almost raises like my hackles anymore. Yeah, just like Shakespeare. Well, mm. to me, I think there's um, an element of sincere artistry in those works by H.G. Wells and you know Orson Scott Card and all them. Um, there's like they might have been in their own way trying to be on the right side and warn people true, but true. they also had some kind of inside like ideas of what things were all about, you know? Well, that's it. You know, and it, I almost wonder about myself at times, like, and this forum, right? Like how much are we being manipulated to be looking at the things that we're looking at? And we often address that, which is good and healthy, you know, but like, it's like we don't want to be the mouthpieces of evil unwittingly. You know, it can it can be easier to do that than maybe we realize. Like these guys might not have known that they're full right. of shit, right? Or that they're sowing a certain narrative like on behalf of others. You can well, be that's... a you can be a useful idiot even if you're, you know, intelligent and talented, right? Like <laughs> good authors it's... wrote wrote books that they probably didn't know they were manipulated into writing <laughs> yeah you know? i mean it's like that oliver anthony song i think that yeah. that is a sincerely written and performed song i mm-hmm. just i think that maybe the way it went viral was pretty engineered and stuff like yeah. that yeah. but that doesn't make him not a true artist and right um i definitely spend plenty of my own artistry uh, wallowing in the doldrums or whatever, like concentrating on some of that negativity that, um, like Owen Benjamin was talking against. Um, and I get where he's coming from too, where that's not a great thing to encourage, but from an emotional, an emotional standpoint, um, being able to connect with that and go through it, like that's what music is for. Yeah. Is, yeah. And yeah. So I don't know. Like I, I, I agree. I agree. I did the same with my with my writing, you know, it's like it definitely I was tapping into sort, you know, the dark and the light or at least attempting to. I don't know. What do you think about that idea, Stella, with your music? Like you, you know, I've listened to enough of it to know that you were tapping into some what you might call like, I don't know, emotions of all across the spectrum, right? Yeah, well, as I was explaining when I was on your show and we were talking about that, was sometimes you do get that song that just flows straight through you and through the pen and onto the paper and it's like you hardly change a word. And it's like, wow, where'd that come from? Then you've got other, like I have written a number of songs. I mean, I have bins full of songs. I just haven't recorded many. Um, and there's been many that I will write a line and it's, you know, I'll think, oh, that's a pretty good line. But then I'll think about it and go, oh, I don't really like what's being said. Like, I don't really like what that means or where it could, how it could be interpreted perhaps. So I'll, as much as it's hard to do and it's like, it's a great line, but I'm just not going to put it in there. I'm not going to use it because it's not 
true to what I am trying to deliver. I don't know. Um, it's a bit hard to explain, but I think you get what I mean. Um, yeah, I totally can... get that. I've, I've yeah, 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 fought that you're... battle myself many times, and some of my stuff that's published, I don't really like what it conveys. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? It's almost yeah. – I mean, I, I do pray very often to be used as a vessel. Um, so – I, but I, I feel that you can almost feel when something is from God and when it's from something else. Mm. Like I'm not saying that I hear a voice in my head from God or anything like that, but it's just like it's it's very hard to pinpoint or put into words, but it's like there's this lightness, there's this naturalness, there's this organicness mm. about something that's sort of inspired from a good place. Mm -hmm. And then there's something sort of staticky and fuzzy and soupy <laughs> about something that may not have come from the same good place. So true. it's up to us to discern, you know, that there's another reason why, and I can't say, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't practice this all the time because I like listening to some of the old seventies, you know, music that's supposedly not really good to listen to and stuff, but you know, but we do have to be careful what goes into our orifices, um, eyes, ears, you know, et cetera. I don't have to reel them off. We all know. Um, because that's an energy thing and it, it does inspire and then we react. So we've always got that instant of decision. Like there's never, that's our free will. We're never mm -hmm. um, coerced into doing something when it's, when, when it's actually God, our, the good God. <laughs> yeah. um, it's just flows naturally and it feels right. And you've, you've got that inner peace that is beyond understanding about it. So I think that's, that's the discernment thing. And that, uh, that discernment requires quiet and mm -hmm. solitude and, and not all the pollution that we live in now. That's They're trying to choke all that stuff out of us. They're trying to pollute us so much. They can't kill it, so they're going to muddy the waters, you know, muddy the sounds and the sights. I mean, as I said before, it's very hard to look in any direction now and not see advertising or something, something that's going to bring us back into that world of economy and slavery it's so hard to let our minds go. We really actually have to go a little bit further away and further and further to get away from, you know, sounds of things, highways, um, aeroplanes, whatever. Finding somewhere quiet and peaceful is not as easy as it used to be. Mm -hmm. go a little bit further. So, yeah, I think it's, there's a lot of value in that. I found that out in the woods recently. I, I went hunting for the first time this year, and it's amazing how so much of what I heard was highway sounds. Yeah, it's so hard to get away from pollution and even light pollution. Like I, I, I do a lot of, well, I'm not a lot. I used to do a lot more astrophotography and, you know, time-lapse oh, nice. photography. And um, it, it's really hard to get away from the light pollution. And when you've got a really long time-lapse going, it's like, oh, no, it's pitch black out here, but it's actually not. By the time you see the end of your half hour or hour or two hour long time lapse. It's like, oh, wow, there's a lot of light around here, isn't there? You know, I've actually got an app that has light pollution maps. So it's like you can get out of it. Oh, nice. Yeah. 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 I was going to say, I lived in one of the darkest places, at least in the continental U.S. Uh, there's definitely darker, but South Central Utah, it was dark out there, man. You know, like yeah. five hours to Vegas, five hours to Salt Lake City, four and a half hours to grand junction and you know it's like beautiful night skies best meteor shower experience i've ever had in my life wow yeah yeah that's what that's i miss awesome. most about 
Tasmania actually was is the beautiful sky, the night sky, and whether it's fake and gay, I don't know. But um, the Milky Way was oh, it's just spectacular down there. Yeah. Um, so many more stars than I'm seeing here in New South Wales. You know, even even in a regional area. But of course, Saturday. I mean, Sydney. You just you only see you know Venus and the really bright things. Not so much there. And of course, the air is so much clearer down there too. So. Got to imagine that was one of the uh, benefits of the sailor's life. On a nice, clear, calm night, I bet you could see some stars. Yeah, for oh, sure. That's how they used to navigate. I mean, they'd be yep. lost without the stars, yep. wouldn't they? They're using their sextants. But that's yep. that's another thing they're trying to do now, block out the sky. Thanks, Billy. He comes yeah. up again. Of course, I guess back then you could probably see the stars from land pretty much most places because we didn't have a million goddamn lights. I could see a lot more from where I am if there weren't all this street lights and stuff yeah. around. I made a point of that in the book when the blackout kicks off and it's like for the first time in the city, he can see all of the stars, not just a few. Yeah. 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 Well, there's um, some, of, some of the ancient cultures, you know, they talk about stars or even some of the um, art, art from their cultures, you know, that really ancient, they have certain stars and that, which apparently don't quite like uh, the pyramids, for instance, apparently they don't quite line up the way they used to. Because it's been, you know, the shifts supposedly. Hmm. I mean, I don't know. I don't know where I stand with the whole flat Earth thing. <laughs> I don't really care what shape it is. It could be a hexagon for all I care. But <laughs> it's really interesting that they, they, you know, they do say that the horoscopes um, aren't. It's they're not really true because the stars shift every twelve or thirteen thousand years or whatever yeah. it is, twenty-five thousand. Some people say. Um, so yeah, nothing stays the same except the word of the Lord. <laughs> it is so funny to be at the level of skepticism where you're like, yeah, sphere, flat, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I'm like, I'm like still on the, I'm on the sphere train, you know, bro. Like I, um, I am too, to be honest, yeah. but I also <laughs> find that idea of the hidden land and stuff like that. Pretty fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. And also yeah. just stuff like it's, it's I don't know, there's some cool stuff to be maybe discovered there, but uh, yeah, my understanding of physics puts me in generally the spherical <laughs> yeah, I yeah. leaned more towards yeah. the, the the ball, <laughs> yeah. but um, I definitely Antarctica, Arctic, Arctica, Arctic and Antarctic are definitely very very interesting. And I find sure. it also interesting that the um flat Earth maps that you see, it's always Antarctica around the outside and Arctic on in the, in the middle. Why is yeah. it never the other way around? Yeah, you got a point. <laughs> Right, the ice I, wall. Uh, there's, uh, there's not exactly an ice wall in the Arctic. Is there a legit an Ar like an Antarctic ice wall? Yeah, that's a real thing. I, well, people can't that's go the, there, I, so it's hard to verify. Well, and like I've seen videos of like supposedly like ancient ruins down in Antarctica, and uh, you know it's hard. It's just so hard to know if that shit if it's bullshit or not, man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, it's, it's said that a lot of the Nazis, you know, that were involved in Operation Paperclip, they went to various places and some of them went down to Antarctica, allegedly. And then, of course, yeah. you've got the Admiral Byrd thing, but who knows if that's a whole psyop too, because again, again, Admiral Byrd's diary was um, released by, I think it was his, might have been his grandson or it might have been his son. Um, but, you know, <laughs> is that a whole psyop in itself? Who's, who's Admiral, Admiral Byrd? 
B Y R D. Um, he did. He was in the um, U.S. Navy, I think. It's not Robert Byrd, is it? The senator? No. Oh gosh, okay. what was his first name? Uh, Richard. Richard. Because okay. I remember Dickie Bird. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, he did a number of expeditions to both Arctic and Antarctica. Um, mm. But the most famous one that he was sort of, which was the big, the big conspiracy, is where he went. He was sent down to Antarctica again, a third, fourth, fifth trip, something like that. Uh, and he took a whole bunch of military with him, like, you know, planes, ships, etc. But it was supposedly just a, in air quotes, scientific expedition. So it's like, well, what's with all the mili military? Anyway, yeah. there's a whole thing of where he got down there and he was flying his plane and he went over, I don't know, was it the ice wall, I guess, or, or a section of Antarctica. And then suddenly this whole area opened up like lake and uh, lake and um greenery and you know it's just just basically things that shouldn't be down there and i'm paraphrasing i'm sorry if i get a few details wrong no i've seen similar stuff yeah yep and so supposedly his plane was then met by other flying objects which then took over his instruments like he couldn't he didn't have control of his own plane and it was landed and then Next thing he knew, he was in some office or something or some place talking to somebody and this guy was like the head of something, like a Nazi, he was dressed in Nazi gear apparently. And they talked to him and I think they filled him in on things, which I, I believe was kept secret. Anyway, eventually he was like sent away again and accompanied out of that area with the plane under their control. And then when they got to a certain point, because there was, the voices were coming over the radio so he could hear communications with them. And then they said, all right, well, you've now got control of the plane. And then, yeah, he just, he ended up leaving um, Antarctica. They were meant to be down there for months and it was only a few, sh a couple of weeks or something like that. And they all came back again. So that's sort of that. And it's like, was well, that true or not? We don't know. We'll never know because no one's allowed to go there. But similar sort of things in in the Arctic. He apparently looked down on one of his flights and said, "Oh, I can see an elephant." <laughs> and he went and he went what? down a little bit closer and he went, "It's not an elephant. It's a mammoth." Huh. So who knows what's going on? Huh. I think there is something maybe in the Hollow Earth thing. That's possibly they are portals to the middle, the inner Earth. I don't know. I haven't really looked into all that that much. But I'm not opposed to just the idea of like realms and the firmament and the you know like. I, you know, I'm not opposed to any idea. I'll, I'll, I'll entertain. Somebody said like the mark of intelligence is, um, being willing to consider an idea without exactly like adopting it right away. Yeah. You know, something like that. So yeah, that's what we're doing here on the WTF forum. You know, it's what it's I, all about. Yeah. 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 It's, shit's so interesting. There's, and I find it definitely like something going on if they won't let us go there. Exactly. Yeah. What that's what I was saying last week. What is the reason? Why has anyone bothered to say how come we can't go there? And the conclusion was it'll probably be things like we for have your own to good. It's yeah, dangerous. You'll die well, if you go there. Your, die. Yeah, your own safety. But I was actually going to say, um, they, they often totally use care if we die. <laughs> yeah, they often use excuses like there's a very fragile community of such and such seals or such and such penguins that we must keep them safe. So no one can go anywhere near that area. You know, there's so many little islands and things on in the world that you're not allowed to go to. We've got a couple here off the coast of Australia. 
Hmm. Can't go there because there's um, endangered penguins or pelicans or something. <laughs> it's like, okay. Hmm. And then you get shot if you try. <laughs> yeah. It's and just little... some billionaire's mansion or something. Yeah. Yeah. Or a portal. <laughs> yeah. Fucking shit. Tunnel. As usual, zone. as usual, I feel like we're leaving with more questions than we started, right? <laughs> There's an island off the coast of Scotland, which apparently had some kind of powder or something over it, which was like, oh, no, you can't go anywhere near that island now because you'll get it's not good for you to get this powder on you. And they like, I'm sorry, I'm so vague. It's just came to mind. I've only read it once. Um, so yeah, you're basically, you're not allowed to go onto that Island because they need, it was some leftover chemical thing from the war or something. So there's a whole Island, you know, no one's allowed to go anywhere near it and they, you know, guard it. <laughs> so it's like, well, mm-hmm. okay. Okay. We believe ya. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, as usual, Hey, three hours and 10 minutes in anybody got a topic they want to talk about after I'm dominated. <laughs> I'm glad you did. Cause I didn't really bring anything. What the fuck for him? Yeah. Um, I mean, I liked the one post that is a totally different subject, but, um, uh-huh. the, the electric cars, uh, posts. Oh yeah. Pull that up. That was funny that, that I have it up. Um, Oh, that one that Drizzle dropped? Yes. Yeah. 18 reasons. 18 reasons why you really need an electric car. Should I post the link or should I just read some? I mean, we <laughs> could pull we could pull it up just for the visuals of it. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I thought it was uh, interesting because um copy these, it into here. The snippet, which is the bit that you sort of read, like the preview before you go into the article. That said, 17 reasons. Yeah, see, the URL says 17, and then the article says 18. So it's like, oh, oh. somebody came up with another one. <laughs> the <laughs> they edited it. <laughs> they often do. A lot of these articles are recycled from, I'm not saying this one is, but some of them are recycled old news, and they just redress it, put lipstick on it, you know. Put a little lipstick on that pig. Yep. Here it is. Yeah. 18 reasons why you need an electric car by Tyler Durden. This is zero hedge. Go ahead. Do you want to read it out loud or? Yeah, but I'm watching your screen, so I'll, I'll follow you. You're a Tolstoy enthusiast. Can you zoom out a little bit? Yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah. You're a Tolstoy enthusiast who's never quite conquered the monumental war and peace. Fear not. <laughs> for that long charging queue becomes your literary sanctuary where you can immerse yourself in 1225 pages of Russian opulence while your electric <laughs> steed gains its much needed energy boost. <laughs> so this is sort of the tone of this thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. Fine dining at Chiswick, Morgan and Quay is a given, but have you truly lived until you've sampled the delights of the local servo? Post-war and peace, dive into the exquisite world of Slurpees, grizzly meat pies, and try-hard coffee at the gas station. Breakfast and lunch might just be a charging queue away. YOLO. You only live once. (laughs) Forget Bill Gates and his private jets. Your guilty pleasure is the toasty warmth of winterized garage. Electric cars, much like their owners, detest the cold. Embrace the synergy <laughs> by marking by parking your electric chariot in the heated garage. <laughs> A warm welcome indeed. <laughs> so yeah, we don't have to read them all, but it's a fun little article. There. A fun article. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The hypocrisy of it all. Hitchhiking adventures. <laughs> yeah. 
or solitary contemplation on a deserted county road, anyone. Electric cars need to charge frequently. So if you're going on a long journey, there's a chance you may not make it to the next EV (laughs) charging station. This is where War and Peace also comes in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, didn't um, didn't Ford just announce that they're sort of getting out of their EV um, range of cars? Mm, is that right? I believe. I think I think that's a trend. I yeah, yeah. because they're realizing it's absolute crap and just ridiculous virtue signaling, basically uh, creating these things. I mean, look at China. Have you seen those miles and miles? of electric vehicles that they have in China that are they've their seats are still covered in plastic. The everything's brand new. There's about sixteen kilometers on the clock or miles or whatever. Um, because it's all about the subsidies. So they make all these things, they get their subsidies and then nobody really wants the cars. So they just go and park them all. And there's like yeah. acres and acres of these brand wow. new cars just oh sitting there. Gosh. We covered oh, that actually. It's, it's like the new it's like the new Potemkin village. We, where you're stimulating the economy by making this yeah, crap that no one's even going to use. We did we did an episode, um, I, I guess neither of you were on it, but a forum where we talked a lot about China. And yeah, they, they've got these fields of electric vehicles yeah. and electric bikes. And you know what's happening now? As we, as we sort of started the show with, apparently because there's all these lithium-ion batteries like corroding, these these like storage yards are just catching fire. Oh, yeah. you know, and like they're terrible. Yeah, kind of yeah. like it's a that plane. Exactly. I and, liked. Um, uh, I just wanted to read number nine. Coal mining is so pre-COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the same as the um, wind turbines. Like, um, yeah, the subsidies for them are insane. For instance, in, in Australia, it came out that. The subsidies of the middleman, whoever that company is, probably I think they're Chinese primarily. Yeah, I do mm. remember they were. Uh, so per this is per wind turbine. So one wind turbine is a subsidy of six to nine hundred thousand dollars. And what they do is they offer farmers mm-hmm. some money to have the wind turbines put on their property. And the amount of money that they originally were offered, like bearing in mind, they get 600 to 900 K. They offer the farmers about 12, 12 K, $12,000, which was recently up to about $30,000 because everyone was up in arms about it. And, um, but not only that, the farmer are, is responsible for the wind turbine maintenance. And if mm. something goes wrong with it and the thing falls down, catches fire and then burns down their neighbor's house or something, they're, they're held responsible. They're liable. So there's that. And um, the fact that they're not even working and then these subsidies just go into these middleman companies and go completely offshore. So the money's all going out of the country. Um, and so none of it's working properly anyway. And-, and not only that, they rape um, beautiful virgin bush that's full of endangered species to pull that down to put in wind turbines to save the planet. I mean, what yeah. the? Mm-hmm. The we've, inverted world. We've discussed a bit about this in the past too, but like, I'm pretty sure. There, there's no way the farmer can maintain one of these modern turbines himself. So no, he probably pay, is just gotta, on the hook to, yeah, hire some contractor who's got a monopoly. Yeah, but well, see, the farmers are so desperate too that, you know, when you chuck a 30K 
check in front of them. They, it probably sounds like a good idea at the time, and it's right. probably spun with a whole bunch of yeah. spin to them. So, well, yeah. especially if you're already in debt, like most farmers are, it's exactly. it's a really unfortunate cycle. Um, yeah, they're beholden to the seed companies. They're beholden to the chemical companies. They're beholden yep. to the fucking wind turbine they're companies. Same company. Yeah, <laughs> where farmers used to be like pretty much on, on their, their own. own. Yeah, yeah. Autonomous. yeah. Hmm. autonomous. They, they were the and, backbone of Australia, the farmers, mm -hmm. and now it's like it's nothing like it used to be. Mm -hmm. This is where permaculture comes in. Permaculture, the, baby. The regenerative, regenerative and no-till stuff, like the tilling led to the Dust Bowl yep. here in America. 100%. Yep. And, in, and cutting sorry. all the trees. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in yeah. that sense, I see a positive slant because even though, like, again, we've got to break a few eggs to make an omelette, it's like that monoculturing, that had to stop. That has, has to stop anyway. It's not good. It's depleting mm -hmm. the soils of all minerals. I mean, they're saying there's, there's not as much nutrition in the food, even the organic stuff, because the right. minerals and everything have been depleted so much and over-farmed. And the monoculturing mm -hmm. is just stupid. It's just no, there's no sense in that at all. But it, again, the love of money is the root of all evil. So if we can all just, you know, wake the F up and mm -hmm. start doing our own little things again and and permaculturing even just our little suburban blocks, it's a fantastic start. And, I mean, the deserts can be converted. The simple fact that they want to talk about coal and fucking oil, but they don't want to talk about soil says mm -hmm. everything apparently by tonnage america's number one export is topsoil yep floating down the mississippi river and blowing away on the air and blowing away yeah what do you mean export like not contrived do you mean or it's a bit of a turn of phrase but it, oh, okay. in, in comparison to the tonnage of goods that we export mm-hmm the number, you know, if if we're considering the possibility of soil being an externality, but something that is still it's being also, exported it's a resource in a physical way, it's being exported. It's like how you might export oil or whatever. Oh, okay. Whatever so you commodity. mean like soil in bags and things? Like not literally. Oh, in not, this way, in, in this, this sense, way, it's nobody being washed down the river into the ocean via erosion. So the red tides and stuff, it, it fucks up the ocean because all the nitrates in the topsoil, the synthetic, you know, um, fertilizers go down into the ocean and cause the red tides. And then oh, yeah, we don't, the, the we don't have that second. soil to grow with anymore. And they have to try to like <laughs> yeah. rebuild what they have left. Yeah. The, the chemicals don't wash away all by themselves. They're clinging to soil. I mean, it's it, that's the silty river delta you know effect uh the gulf of mexico gets so much excess soil you know like the one area of uh, landmass that's growing aside from i i guess you know hawaii within the united states is the mississippi delta landmass is being deposited and it's all midwestern farm soil that's the yeah, you know the erosion the erosion is out of control yeah has so, been for a while. So you're saying that the soil is moving from that where it came from to the Mississippi and like clogging up. Well, isn't that? It's not clogging up. It's, it's, I mean, deltas form naturally through natural erosion, but we till a, a pretty big portion of the Great Plains and the Midwest 
every year. That's all within the Mississippi uh, Valley Basin. Uh, water watershed. Yeah. So it all all that disturbed soil when the heavy rains come, it, it you know some of it washes downstream and gets carried all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. Right. Okay. Good. Yeah. So I was what was in my head there, and this is going to be really ignorant, um, was that you know how Katrina came along and sort of basically where there was land was now water. Is that still the Tempor- case? Tem- temporarily, that was a storm surge. Oh, that didn't stay like that. No, no. So it recedes, and uh, I mean, hurricanes hit that area, and the water comes up, and the water goes down. That's why they built all them levees. I'm sure there was pretty substantial okay. erosion in the process of that storm, but New Orleans is in the Mississippi Delta. What erosion is caused by storms is made up for with deposition, but it, they have a lot of infrastructure problems. I did work in New Orleans. Um, it's below sea level. The, I, I saw I saw a sewer manhole cover. It smelled like the whole city smells like farts. Okay. <laughs> This fucking manhole cover I saw, there was so much backed up gas pressure that it was dancing like a quarter. It's like a 90 pound, 90 pound piece of cast iron. It was dancing like a quarter from the pressure underneath. It was insane. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a weird place. Uh, I love New Orleans and I hate New New Orleans. It's a really interesting joint talking about like places with spiritual sort of energy it's a very spirit spirited city we'll say and and that is one of those places where um they should have been more up on the maintenance of the levees and all that kind of stuff yeah. and so much of the damage was due to the lack of uh infrastructure if you will um there well, we all know and we all know george those kinds of things have been ascribed to a bunch of these places that have been wiped out by storms recently true uh yeah we all know george bush uh, created Hurricane Katrina. So, <laughs> yeah, it sounds like um, a place that probably should never have been built on in the first place. Um, well, yes and no, though. There's a reason. Their house on the sand, huh? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. you could it's pull that commerce center, right? But it's a massive port. It's yeah. a safe. It's a warm water port, protected from the elements, relatively. You know, I mean, hurricanes. Yeah, the, the Gulf of Mexico there. is very tame compared to the ocean. Yeah, well, and and you know the delta is it's a shipping lane because the Mississippi River gets so much fucking commercial traffic. Yeah, the amount of the amount of barges flowing to and from New Orleans up the Mississippi to deliver this, that, and the other is is massive. Hmm. Well, that's the same reason because this town that I have moved to, or it's not my actual town, it's the next bit just down the road a little bit. Um, that got severely flooded out at the beginning of last year, twice, mm. uh, and has done many times, but that was like historically unheard of, you know, unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Lismore was built there in the first place because of the river, because that was there like in the colonial days, um, because of the economy basically. Um, so yeah, using the river for that same thing, commercial reasons. And, um, the local indigenous w- warned they warned them. That, I mean, they all got displaced, of course, their tribes. I think it was about something like 11 tribes or something got displaced because of the Lismore town going in. But, yeah, the the natives, um, the people, the indigenous, warned them, don't b- 
spilled here, it floods, and they just didn't listen to them because it was just more important to have the economy, the river accessible for the, I don't know, whatever, logs, ships, whatever they're doing. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, fairly well known that it shouldn't have been built there, and they keep building it back, but not better. <laughs> but that's oh, the plan. <laughs> that's I mean, that's how cities are, though. Trust the right? plan. That's how that's how every city is. They build upon the ruins of the previous. Yeah, after after Katrina, generation. they had this idea where they were going to build the hotels on barges, so they would float. Mm -hmm. So I mean, that seems like a cool idea. <laughs> it seems like it could work for a yeah, while yeah. anyway. So you'd think logically that I mean there are quite a few houses that do have like um they're built up. I wouldn't say on stilts, but they're yeah. the living yeah, area is like I lived in one of those once. Yeah. Right. And they, they might have a bottom floor with, you know, garage or whatever, but, but there's a lot that aren't either. So, um, yeah, there's no sort of insurance of, obviously for these people anymore either. I don't know when that finishes. Insurance, last flood. I will tell you flood insurance sucks to pay for because I did have oh, to pay for it in that house. Um, we would have floods where the water would come under the house yeah, right. and, uh, it was, it's a cool adventure. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a fun thing. If you're not too nervous about your cars, you know, we'd park the cars up on the hill. If we knew something was coming. Mm. If you knew something was coming, it doesn't hit you at three o'clock in the morning. Right. Like the Lismore one did. Right. Yeah. And I actually built a garage that had some kind of stilts on it as well. So I could keep bikes and mowers and stuff in there. And yeah, right. it wasn't as high as the house, but it was something. And I would get nervous because it would come up close to that level. I think it's still yeah. there. Haven't been down there in a while, but I think it's still there. <laughs> yeah, well, the Lismore floods, um, you know, people were sort of, a lot of people have been through many floods before. And, yeah. But this was, again, unprecedented. And, you know, some people were sort of, they just moved things upstairs and then realizing, holy crap, it's coming up here even. And then they'd get up into their roof and they still weren't high enough. And then they'd be on their roof and they'd still get, you know, some, there's a lot of people died, but the yeah. numbers, uh, the official numbers are very elusive. Of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> now we have, of course, resilient Lismore, an office that's set up. I mean, th that word resilient to me sort of gives it away of what the um, origin of what they're trying to do is. I mean, that's, you see that word all the time on WEF and smart cities and all that Resilient. stuff. Resilient. Yeah. It's yep. not a bad word, but yeah, it's become it's a great word until words. they took it over. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I had to pee so bad. I, 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 I couldn't hold it anymore. <laughs> Y'all. I was like, I think I can make it, but I couldn't, I had to go. Yeah. Not good for you. Anyway, <laughs> you brought something up here. Yes. So, yeah, I, I was thinking of a way to kind of wrap her up, right? We had our little funny with the electric car thing. You know, we've been on a theme of of vessels, vessels, right? And the spirit of such things. One of my favorite, if not if not my favorite, it's kind of a dead tie between Doc Watson, who I named my dog after, and John Hartford. Are either of you at all familiar with John Hartford? No. You know, he was the kind of guy, I don't think he would sue me for playing his song. He died a while ago. You know, he definitely won't sue you. <laughs> his estate might come after me, but I think I think we can get away with this one. Uh, I doubt it's in the uh, copyright filters, but we'll see, I guess. 
I might have just triggered it, but this is one of my favorite songs. He he was an interesting lad. He got very, very rich by writing a song that Glenn Campbell played. You might be familiar with the song called Gentle on My Mind. Maybe not, but it's a if you heard it, it's a radio hit. I'm not gonna play it. It's a great track, but I'm more of a John Hartford fan than a Glenn Campbell fan. And he had a lot of really good, well-written songs. But he he was a man that grew up dreaming of being a paddlewheel captain. And he was a really good musician, and he worked his ass off for a long time, and he finally made it big by writing this song that someone else made famous. And he kind of just like had this small following of really dedicated fans. And he'd play shows, and he'd write more songs, and some of them would get picked up. Uh, but eventually he just kind of settled down and he had the money. So he bought himself a paddle wheel and he lived out his childhood dream of being a paddle wheel captain floating up and down the Mississippi river. You know, this just seemed to tie kind of a lot of things together. So I thought I'd play this song and then maybe we do our, you know, adios, uh, plugs and whatnot. How's that sound? Okay, before we sort of do that and get into the vibe, just let mm-hmm. me um, just say I've just put a link into the private chat for you there. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll probably enjoy, or well, you've probably heard of the song Old Man River, came hmm. from a, um, a live show, you know, or show. Uh, it was originally done by a black gentleman called Paul Robeson, who has an amazing voice, really deep voice. It's a beautiful song. Um, but I've put the link in for Jim Crochet's version because I'm an absolute mm. Jim Crochet nice, freak. Nice. I love Jim Crochet. Yeah. Well, Sadly no, we... taken way before his time in 1973. He was killed in a yeah. plane crash. But, um, yeah, beautiful version. And uh, Jim is just such – he's so diverse. He's got some really, really funny – if mm-hmm. you ever hear him live yeah. and hear him talking, like giving his stories, it's such he's a like good He's like a stand-up listen. comedian sometimes. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the West Coast turnaround. He's stuff. <laughs> like, like Arlo Guthrie. He's one of my favorites. Same right. way. Yeah. So I, I highly recommend, you know, people look into Jim Crochet's got he only had a few songs, but they were all every single one was excellent song. Yeah. Beautifully written. Well, from I mean, tear jerkers to funny ones. I, I wanna say these are both well, I was gonna say short songs. They're not terribly long. Maybe we just play them both back to back, you know? Fuck it. Sure. If so you guys I wanna, aren't I wanna say guys. um Something on the screen here, Mark Twang reminds me, since we were mm-hmm. talking about the Mississippi and everything, he's one of my favorite authors. He's got such great satire and such a great, yes. um, yeah, he, his, the people who he creates are so imaginative and so real. And yeah. the way he makes fun of everyone and everything, like all the religions and all the like societal norms and everything, he just like, he, saw he makes the all of ridiculous <laughs> he saw he saw the absurdity of everything yeah mark twain yeah so yeah this john hartford album is called mark twang with a g at the end right <laughs> yes oh, heard of him. you've never heard of mark twain i've heard of mark twain but not oh yeah no twang. mark twang it's a play on the on because yeah i figured that right because <laughs> twang <laughs> here yeah. we go yeah twang. Well, I likes black coffee fried eggs and a well-done keep steak. 
He likes a red dress and a pearly white teeth and the flash of a pretty brown leg. He said, back in the 30s, you know, you never had it made. He's an engineer over on the Ohio River running in the Pittsburgh trade with the inspection office in Louisville at a desk for a very short time. And he played in a band on two different boats working for the Stratford line. And long ago he smoked reefer and even made homebrew. And the reefer coming through New Orleans back before World War II. He's just a feller, worked on the river all his life by a paddle wheel. You say he's old-fashioned, well, that ain't no big deal. Well, it's too thick to navigate, and it's too thin to plow. So let him go on, mama, don't put him down for it now. Sits and smokes an old eyebolt cigar, says he doesn't miss it at all. But he still goes out and he makes a few trips in the summer and then in the fall. Oh, the railroad trains, the bus and the planes are taking up all the slack. He's been watching all those river towns slowly turn their back. He's just a feller, worked on the river all his life by a paddle wheel. You say he's old fashioned. Well, that ain't no big deal. Well, it's too thick to navigate, and it's too thin to plow. So let him go on, mama. Don't put him down for it now. comes from a real old time way of life he had to fight to just learn how he might even have voted for nixon once but i'm sure he sees that now well friday night he makes the best damn gumbo you'd ever want to eat saturday morning for everyone's up he's gone off down to the fleet he's just a feller worked on the river all his life by a paddle wheel you say he's old-fashioned well, that ain't no big deal well it's too thick to navigate and it's too thin to plow so let him go on, mama. Don't put him down for it now. You're as pretty as he is ugly. And he's the happiest man alive. You've got him into believing that old men are back in style. Now you see these oysters, Benville, and this baked potato skin. I ate them so I can grow up and be an old man just like him. He's just a feller, worked on the river all his life by a paddle wheel. You say he's old fashioned, well that ain't no big deal. Well, it's too thick to navigate, and it's too thin to plow. So let him go on, mama, don't put him down for it now. River, that old man river, he must know something, but he don't say nothing. That old man river, it just keeps rolling along. 
You don't plant taters, you don't plant cotton. Them that plants them is soon forgotten. And old man river, it just keeps rolling along. You and me, sweating strain, body all aching and racked with pain. Load that barge, lift that bell, get a little drunk, and you land in jail. But I get weary, sick of trying, cause I'm tired of living. But I'm scared of dying, man, oh man, river, it just keeps rolling along. You and me, sweating straight, body all aching and racked with pain. Hold that barge, lift that veil, get a little drunk, and you land in jail. I get weary, sick of trying, cause I'm tired of living. I'm scared of dying, man, oh man, river, it just keeps rolling on. That, that is good shit, y'all. Bear snare was the audio coming in a little rough for you there. We could hear it. Um, I don't know mm. if it was just me or other guys too, but hopefully, hopefully uh, it sounds good on the recording. Uh, yeah, but that that's some beautiful shit, man. Both of those songs, nice song. yeah, both I, those songs very similar, very similar themes and characters. You know, it's it's funny that the the river is kind of personified in 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 the second song. I don't know that there's there's a spirit to to the water, right? People talk a lot about energy, the Mississippi in particular, having a seriously powerful spirit, right? Mm -hmm. The line that stuck out to me in that song, Stella, um, what do you say? I tired, of, tired, tired of, living, of living, but I'm scared of dying, scared of dying. I was going to point that out, too. It's my favorite line. That's a wild line. It's beautiful. It's yeah, that's dark. um it's dark but beautiful. Yeah. No need to fear people. Um so that's from a uh play called Showboat originally. It's from I don't know, thirties, I think, nineteen thirties, perhaps. Off the top of my head, could be wrong. Around there. Hmm. Uh yeah, Jim Crochet, he's um I highly recommend you go and check him out. He's also got a song called New York's Not My Home, yeah, which I think um great song. Anyone who's lived in New York and is now leaving New York will probably relate to that one. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just even just from the title, you know. It's a great karaoke track. I've Which seen, one? I, New York's not my home. Uh, really? I've seen somebody really do it well at karaoke. It's it's a bit of a slower tempo than a lot of karaoke people do, but if you can sing, that's a good that's a good singing song. Yeah. Okay. I'll be interested uh, yeah. if you if it's the same song that you think it is. New York's not my home. Oh yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. I never pictured that as a karaoke song, but okay. It's, Fair hey, enough. Why not? It, it's a vibe. It's a it's a strong vibe. Yeah. Mm. You know, Bear. I'm happy to. Stella and I got a song. You want? You got any requests? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing offhand, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, those seemed appropriate with what we've been talking about. As usual, yeah. we've covered the gamut. We've we've been broad and. I, I think done a good job as usual. I hope. I uh, we could close on a sort of relevant joke about banjos. Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> One day, a bunch of terrorists hijacked a plane full of banjo players who were on their way to a banjo convention. The terrorists told authorities that unless their demands were met, they would start releasing the banjo players. Nobody wanted them to release them. There's this thing you might not be aware of, but <laughs> there's this thing that you may not be aware of, but musicians are always putting shit on banjos and ba banjo players. So yeah, it's just an ongoing joke. It's a that's horrible. There's that's a, horrible. Banjos <laughs> are fucking dope. Okay. I want to say banjo. shout out to Sir TJ the Wrathful. He's currently my favorite banjo player. Mm. Mm. I can imagine you playing banjo, Mike. Have you got one? I I kind of want to. Pick one. I need to. I should. I don't. I can really I see it. I. It <laughs> speaks to me. I don't know. I. You know. It's. It's my territory. It's. It's like the the foothills of Appalachia, man. Like from from where I am. Well, really, from about an hour. I'm. I'm in the flatlands still, but I go an hour south, and I'm in basically the foothills, and that culture is strong, man. It's that bluegrass it's territory. That bluegrass territory. It's. It's a really strong like. Irish influence mixed with just mountain like folk like lore and music and I fucking love it moonshine and banjos for the fucking win oh yeah <laughs> sounds good come and get us you know like fuck you <laughs> <laughs> you know the thing about that story that joke that makes no sense no self-respecting banjo player would ever fly <laughs> they would take a paddle wheel okay steamboat yeah. <laughs> yeah hell yeah um that might have even i wonder if that was the inspiration be behind the original mickey mouse cartoon steamboat willie that's sort mm -hmm. of around the same time as uh showboat i think i mean i guess yeah that was the way they transported people then so it was it was the that was a riverboat that was a riverboat yeah 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 they're cool. That's uh, yeah. I love those old paddle wheel steamers. They're they're really wild. Beautiful. Yeah. 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 And they were really well built on the inside. Very luxurious usually. And uh, yeah. Speaking of things built by human hands out of wood that probably had quite a soul. You know. Well, they... One of the. Sorry. Um, one of the vacations that I have thought I would like to take at some point in my life is some kind of Mississippi river tour. Yeah. Possibly so on a good. paddle boat. <laughs> Fuck yeah, dude. The only Fuck way to yeah. Do it. yeah. So they were driven by steam, which what ran mm -hmm. from, ran from coal. Did coal it? fired uh, boilers. Yeah. Like a lo locomotive. Right. Yep. Yep. Same idea. Yep. Big belts turning them paddles nice and slow geared down nice and low. Yeah. Did they uh, did they rely on momentum much? Because they, you know, this sort of, uh, I don't know. I'm sure they were kind of um, sluggish to steer and to stop and, and get to, going. Yes. I wonder how yeah. they do down, like going downriver. 
going they probably, river makes yeah, they sense. probably they probably yeah. burn at half speed or half temperature or something like they probably yeah. keep that paddle wheel going because you want to you want to cover some ground yeah uh, and, well and you got to have some way to steer if you're yeah. if you don't have yeah. momentum in the water you're not steering true yeah hmm. but you could probably follow the current pretty good you know that yeah. old Mississippi man, it's just a slow rolling old girl, man. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She just keep rolling along. That's right. Yep. That's right. <laughs> if you haven't ever seen the Muscle Shoals documentary, that's a cool one too. They talk about how all these great rock and roll and R and B and gospel records were recorded in this little podunk town of Muscle Shoals. Yeah, and they talk about how there's something magical about it. Yep. Something in the water. It's right What's on the, the Mississippi. What was the name of that documentary? It's called Muscle, Muscle Shoals. Muscle Shoals. It's talked yeah. about in, um, is it a Credence Clearwater song that they bring it up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They mentioned the, uh, there's a, there was a band. I'm trying to remember what they They were like the studio band. They mentioned the, um, God damn. It might yeah. have just been the band. <laughs> well, no, they mentioned down in Muscle Shoals with the somebody, somebody. Um, I find out. Yeah, sorry, I'm blanking on it. <laughs> Not sure if it was Credence for sure, but uh, I've probably heard the song a million times and just never tweaked. And didn't it. know that what lyric it, was a, right. a place or something. Yeah, oh, I was. No, you know I, what? Maybe it's Leonard Skinner. I was thinking it Leonard was Leonard Skinner. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's in Sweet Home Alabama. Yeah, and uh, let's see. Oh, where is it? Okay, yeah. yeah oh, right. in Alabama. Um, now, Muscle Shoals has got the Swampers. That's the band, the Swampers. Ah. And they've been known to pick a song or two. Yes, they do. That's the line. Yeah. There's there's a spirit in Mus Muscle Shoals that brought out some of the best American music, like, fucking ever. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The amount, of, the amount of, like, chart setting, you know, top 10 albums that came from this little tiny town is kind of weird i think wasn't it the um i want to say the rolling stones like made a point to go record an album there when they kind of heard the lore oh. of it all yeah wow okay so yeah. there's some energy there whereabouts yeah, is I it you two recorded a song there it's in it's in alabama alabama okay yeah well that's oh, where and... um jim crochet's from i think pretty sure is that right wow. i'm pretty sure huh. Yeah, well, the, John Hart, well, John Hartford's from fucking St. Louis. Uh, you know, oh, living on that river, living on that river changes people. You know, I'm glad to be close-ish to the Ohio River, but I like it's kind of a pipe dream. I'd love to buy a little cabin right on the fucking Ohio because it's part of the same big old artery network. Feeds yeah, right to the what, Mississippi. Yeah. That's why they say um, surfers are so addicted because they're sort of basically addicted to the energy mm -hmm. <laughs> of the water. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. He was born in Pennsylvania. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Died in Louisiana. Yeah. Well, he. Tr I, I'm sure he picked up culture along the way. Yeah. He was a truck driver too, I believe. I think. Mm -hmm. That makes he sense. About them, that's for sure. <laughs> he did sing about them. Yeah. yeah. Well, folks, what do you say we wrap this some bitch up? We're pushing four hours. Uh, it's been a wow. it's been a I'm great cool forum. Yeah, yeah. I believe we went so long with just three of us. Wow. <laughs> I know, I know. It was I didn't good. Think it, it was gonna be four hours. <laughs> yeah, no. I honestly, I was like starting to run low on clips about like an hour and a half in. I'm like, we'll see what happens here. But no, well done, team. Uh, as usual, this has been Mike the Polymath, uh, Easy Peasy Podcast. If you want to buy my book or 
find anything related to me, go to easypeasy.ittybitty.tips and I will pass it to Stella Q. Yeah, thanks to uh, Brucey and Ando also for tuning in and whoever else tuned in that I didn't see. Um, Stella Q from unionoftheunknowns.com. That's our link tree. You can go there and find all the tentacles where you can do different things with us. <laughs> I don't, yeah, there's a newsletter as well. Um, missed you, Ashley, but you'll be back soon. You're doing some good stuff with the autonomy. Um, I'm also occasionally on the propaganda report with Brad Binkley and sometimes with You're Missing the Point with Drew. Uh, over to you, Bear. It's been fun. Yeah, it has been fun. Um, I'm Bear Snare at thebearsnare.com and my friends hate freedom podcast. You can listen to my music at my website as well. And uh, right now I'm promoting the album Quail Dog. So check that out. Oh, nice. I like your website. It's, uh, it's got all sorts of fun things in it. You know, prepping stuff and homesteading yeah, stuff. I, I try to put more resources in there here and there. And, and I've got some things that are mentally in the works, but I probably want my wife's help with setting up a new tab and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Joint venture. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, yeah. Shout out to all the all the folks that couldn't make it tonight. All our good friends. We got Ando. We got Rob. We got Ashley. Drizzle. Ashley. Drizzle all the good people. OG, Dad Bod. Yeah. You know, not to mention the folks that haven't been on in a while, but certainly are always welcome. Yeah. This has been a blast. Thanks for coming to the WTF Forum. I really do appreciate it. Appreciate you too. And all of our dedicated listeners. We'll talk to you soon. Always Love fun hanging out with you guys. Yeah, buddy. <laughs>